0: Well, last time we did Kiss, Mary Kill, and I just don't want to get stale, so I have another question for you. What world, I'm going to give you three options, would you rather live in? The world of 1984, the world of The Hunger Games, or Cyborg's Unreality?
1: What is Cyborg's Unreality? Oh, oh, from the Titans. <laughs>
0: I couldn't think of what like the name that. is. What is the name?
1: I think it's yeah, it's this oh oh technis.
0: Yeah the technus
1: world, the Technus reality. Yep. Do I get to pick my district in the Hunger Games?
0: Oh, Uh yes. If if so you if you go with Hunger Games, you can choose your district as well, yeah.
1: Probably the Hunger Games wow. because I'd get to choose one of the districts because <laughs> eighty four is just 84, if I could be a parole, but not cyborgs in reality because it it just seems like it's like it's like one of those, it's like the it, the cyborg gun reality is um, kind of like the whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, mm-hmm. dream world of the sure. with the black mercy plant where it's like yeah. it seems okay and then it just starts getting worse and worse. So.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I would agree. What what division do you think you would pick of Pan Am? I don't know. That's the I mean, problem. The easy choice I, is one through three.
1: Yeah, but I don't want to be like one of those freak people in the Capitol who gets like all that weird pl- plastic <laughs> surgery.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, like.
0: Yeah.
1: I want to be. I want to be somewhere where, like, when the revolution does come, I'm I'm on the right side of it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You know, I don't want to be. I don't want to be. Um, you know, on Madame Defarge's list oh of. Oh, my, yeah. <laughs> you
2: know, like.
1: Absolutely.
2: So.
0: Yeah.
2: Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, is Gordon Speaker. Lopez Hair Removal, this is Jose holy transformation one minute plain barbara gordon librarian and commissioner gordon's daughter and the next minute something new has been added batgirl modeled after her idol batman holy apparition no boy wonder i'm batgirl you are no longer alone cape Crusader! it took me three years to track
3: down the jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it funny it only took me 10 minutes to figure out how to snatch it back no matter how you do it crime
2: doesn't pay girls
3: some things are long forgotten some things were never said But I had a wandering heart I said we were opposite lovers You kept trying to prove me wrong And I know that I ran you down So you ran away with your heart But just know that I want you back Just know that I want you Just know that I want you, I'll take the fall and the fault in I'll give you all the love I never gave before I live. Just know that I want you back. Mm. Just know that I want you back. Mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. Just know that I want you, I'll take the fall and the fault I'll give you all the love I never gave before I live. I know it's hard And it may
0: never be
2: enough But don't
0: take it out on me now Well, salwete! I'm your host, Stella. And this is Back the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 156 for April MMXVIII. Back the Oracle is brought to you by Gimme Those Star Wars. out
3: of 77. Oh, Star Wars! But Star Wars! Give me those Star Wars! Don't let them end.
4: Give me those Star Wars. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network.
0: I was actually on, or I will be on, the April episode where Shagalicious and I, my my dear friend, Tom's dear friend as well, uh, (laughs) talk about Thrawn. And we actually compare the recent Thrawn versus Heir to the Empire, and we, we talk about New versus Old Reader. I would also like to pimp out questions we don't have answers uh, with uh, Harold, as I call him, and Donovan. And I was invited on. I send out questions sometimes that I want them to do the legwork and the hard work, and I just listen in, and maybe I like what they have to say. That sounds familiar. But this time (laughs) – that's funny. This time I sent it in, and unfortunately I betrayed myself because they asked me on. And it was about empathy, basically how do we teach empathy or engage in empathy and it's something that is really important to me i know it's really important to tom it, it pops up practically every episode on required reading and uh i think you know to a certain extent we we got some answers but it's 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 got to be an ongoing topic i think whew, yeah we need some models absolutely uh, around us to to help us out but it's it's something that we should strive for the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. MileHigh Comics has an inventory of over five million comics from the Gold, Silver, Bronze, and Modern Age, and over one hundred thousand trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, that's okay because Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So, if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics dot com. I did. Did you?
1: Yeah, I got. It. Well, what'd you get? The- um, I got two issues of Punisher War Journal that I needed Ooh. for my uh, podcast in uh-huh. Country because involved the nom.
0: Yeah, um, you, I think I saw that on your, your Twitter that it crossed over.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, f- funny enough, though, I went through their eBay store. Oh. Because they actually have a very good eBay store. I've been ordering from Mile High Comics since about 1991. Wow. When you When they had those yellow ads in the old comic books. And you call and I'd get the catalog and they would send me the catalogue every so often. And Mike Bailey and I actually had a whole episode about this. Oh. And American Entertainment and all that. But yeah, so I've been I've been a customer on and off of Mile High Comics for almost thirty years.
0: I like how they have different qualities
1: mm-hmm.
0: of, of their comics so you can choose what you want. And it's also interesting now to go back on and see the issues that I got Way in advance with Oracle, like first appearances of her in Suicide Squad, and that episode with her like pointing the gun and everything. Because I got them on the cheap, and now they're they're pretty expensive. <laughs> that's now driving me nuts because too, of the Suicide Squad stuff. Yeah,
1: and that's been driving me nuts too because I have
0: you want to oh, collect that right? The uh, I have collection.
1: I have a lot of that series, yeah. and the ones that I'm missing are like the expensive ones. Yep, and the last issue.
0: Oh yeah. Yep, so there you go. See, a, a proud supporter of Tom Paneris. <laughs> now that and, I derailed
1: your promo. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: Backworld Oracle is also a proud member of the Batman Universe Family Podcast, hashtag Family, And be sure to support TBU, and by extension, of course, my show, Backworld Oracle, by subscribing to it on Patreon. And I think Dustin's coming out with new incentives. And one of the incentives I laughed at when uh, someone made the suggestion, it was if you become like a certain tier subscriber, they get to guest on a show. And I thought, wouldn't that be interesting if they chose like, I'd like to guest on Backworld Oracle and then uh, see what happens. But it could be fun to have a strange person. But it's also scary because you don't know. Maybe they hate your show and they just want to destroy it. And that's why they came on. Let's hope not, though. But anyways, <laughs> you've already heard his dulcet tones. Mm-hmm. I tried to kick him off, but for whatever reason, he decided to come back on again. But luckily for us, we're going to have a break, and then I guess he'll come back. So it's uh, Welcome Back Again. And, and this is a big one for him because it's Mr. Teen Titans himself, Tom Pannerese. Hey. <laughs> Tom, you're famous now. No, I'm not. You're famous because <laughs> I like how you, you were so flat and how you said that, matter of factly. You're famous because you had a panel at a comic convention.
1: Yeah, it was uh, um, a lecture more than a panel because a panel <laughs> okay. implies more than one person. So uh. it's just me. But yeah, and you can actually hear it on episode 86 of Pop Culture Affidavit, which Ooh. is one of my podcasts, not the panel. But you can hear me just talk about that. I went to the Richmond Comic Con, which is uh it's a s I think it's a semi-annual. I think they have like two, maybe three shows a year. It's a pretty it's a smaller size show. It is not San Diego by any means, or Baltimore or, or New York, or any huge ones, but um it was out of the Richmond Raceway. And I sat down in front of a small crowd and I just did in about 45 minutes on the on what I call podcasting one oh one. You know, how do you Get a podcast started. What equipment do you need? That sort of stuff. You know what? What good comics podcasts are out there? Tips and tricks and that sort of stuff. So it was fun. It's it's part of my overall plan to eventually like weasel my way onto a, p- a panel in a larger comic convention. And uh-huh. so I'm going to play the long game of this. Like one day, like Mike is going to be listening to my show and you're like, you know, I really should fly Tom down to Dragon Con.
0: Oh,
1: because <laughs> Mike can afford to fly me down anywhere.
0: Well, if, apparently if he's taking over Dragon Con, he can.
1: Yeah, but um but that's my that's my that's the dream. So the other dream is to be one of those teacher professional development speakers who comes in, oh does my. like an hour of PD and gets paid a speaking fee that's like more than I make in a month right now. <laughs> You know like you've sat sure. through those people, right? Yeah. Wouldn't never yes. just Why do you want to of... be
0: those people? Why because... do you want to be the the bane of my existence?
1: <laughs> because it's the easiest the freaking job in education. Of... Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's, uh... Have you ever sat through one of those 8-hour days and you're just like, I could do this. I Maybe I do should it? do this and they could pay. Yeah. Know. And and that's what and, I don't want you, to. But but my but my presentation will be like, here's like half an hour, here's some materials. I hope the check clears the rest of you guys have day a day to work because that's what you need more than me jawing at you. But all right. At any rate, um, I I, on the episode, you just hear me kind of talk about my experience. Um, The audio that I tried to get of the panel did not come out due to a couple of rookie mistakes. Um, one of which was not checking the batteries in one of my recording devices. So please, please, kids, check the batteries in your tape recorder. The other thing was that I had the opportunity to interview two uh, comics professionals who were there who I didn't know Ooh. were going to be there. And uh, one of did them did was- not know. No, I didn't know. Um, okay, but but one of the guys who coordinated the show as we were um, as we were hanging out and, and he and I were talking after the show was over uh, came up to me and said, "Have you met?" Bob Sedaro, who was a comics journalist for many, many years and, and wrote some other comics. He wrote, he, he also wrote a lot for um, Marvel age, you know, that publication back in the eighties that was mm. basically Marvel's monthly, like, Hey, this is what's coming out comic. And um, he wrote, you know, for publications like um, wizard and comics, buyer's guide and um, amazing heroes, like, you know, all the fans, all the magazines back in the eighties. So he and I, he had some great stories to tell. And then he introduced me to Gary Cohn, who co-created Blue Devil and Amethyst Princess of Gemworld. So mm. I got to sit down with Gary, who um and who had some great stories to tell. So that, that was a fun episode and uh it's over on popcultureaffidavit.com and two truefreaks.com.
0: Did anyone ask any questions?
1: I got a couple. Um the, the, the one question I did I did get was Regarding intellectual property, in other words, like you know, you drop clips in sure. to your show and stuff, and I said, I said I have a disclaimer at the end of the show that um, I'm using it for review purposes, and I'm not making any money off of it, you know. And I also said, you know, I I said the audience is not at this point it's not huge enough for anybody to really know this, but I, you know, which is kind of implied. But at the same time, it's like yeah, I said, if it kind of falls, does fall under fair use because you're using like you know, bits and pieces of stuff for the purpose of reviewing it very often. So mm-hmm. they were like, okay. So. <laughs> but no, everybody was everybody who I talked to was, was very nice. So.
0: That's great. Maybe yeah. one time you and I can have a panel. I guess two people. Does two people make a panel?
1: It would. I would love to, ha- to do that with you. That would be fun.
0: It would be fun. Yes. Well, yeah, we'd have to pretend that we liked each other. Or that could be our shtick.
1: We do that once a month.
0: <laughs> That's true. That's true. Oh man, well it's good to it's good to be here. Now I have a funny, a, a quick funny story. Maybe it's only funny if you experience it, but I thought I would share it for posterity's sake. I, uh, <laughs> I think a lot of people know on this podcast that I, I work at a Christian school, and so we are right now, and Tom and I are recording is actually pre-April, and we're in Holy Week right now, so the the week leading up to Jesus Christ's crucifixion, and of course, resurrection, and. Just-
1: does Wednesday and Holy Week have a, a name? I don't think it does.
0: It doesn't have a name. It's not
1: like I'd Wacky Wednesday or something. Right? <laughs>
0: I doubt that. No, Maundy and, and, and Good and then, and then Palm, yeah. but all the other ones are just sort of, yeah, what's he, what's he been doing? Uh, so today, Tuesday, uh, on Tuesdays we have chapel and usually involves uh, some worship songs and then there's some sort of message, things like that. And so, of course, you know, we're in Holy Week, so this Tuesday is going to be special. So a month prior or so, I asked if I could sing at chapel, uh, which I do occasion very infrequently. I don't try to, you know, push my... Self off on other people. So we got a quartet together, a colleague, myself, and then uh, these twins that I absolutely love. I've taught them. This is the third year now. They're in AP Latin. And so I'll pump for it. Uh, the song is I don't know if any of you are going to know it, but the song is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. So my colleague's going to sing first, first. I'm going to hop in the really quick harmony. And then I get the second verse. She's going to hop in with a real quick harmony. And then the third, the twins are going to sing the main. I've got a low harmony, and my colleague's got a high. So three part harmony. It's lovely. So the plan is all of this is super planned out. This whole chapel, we're at the end. And what happens sometimes at these Easter chapels, past couple years, is either someone is making a cross or it's pre made. This time, year is pre made. And then we give the students an opportunity to, on a piece of paper, write out. You know, potentially a, a sin that they uh, want to confess, and then they fold it up and, and either nail it to the cross or slip it. And this time it was to slip it on the cross. So it's kind of hard to describe. It was bamboo, it's string, so they're slipping it in there. But it's a beautiful, you know, depending on how they're actually engaging it. It's a it's a beautiful ceremony. So we're going to sing during this, and it's supposed to be at the end. Meanwhile, <laughs> the twins, who are juniors, are on the prom committee, and for what? ever horrible reason the prom committee is decorating the junior senior wing to surprise everyone I guess with what the prom theme is so I guess the idea is that when everyone exits chapel and they go up there that surprise the theme is blah but what a terrible time so I have to go and get the twins at a particular time so that they come down in time I'm going to get them during a video that's called Barabbas. I have no idea what the video is about because technical difficulties. So at the time when I should go up and get the twins, the chaplain turns to me because technical difficulties and says, you're on. I leap up from my chair and basically do a whole lap of the school in order to find the twins. Little did I know that when I left the twins entered from the opposite end of the cafetorium so i ran a lap i come down a teacher tells me that i'm on i'm as if i didn't know because i hear the vamping music i run in i had lost one of my shoes and so i'm running one foot in one foot out i stop at the door put the shoe on run in for whatever reason the seventh graders erupt in uh in applause (laughs) because i made it uh this is all true do you believe that this is a true story tom
1: oh i certainly believe (laughs) that this is a true story
0: so i am out of breath and now the song has to begin so i basically it was i'm thankful that i run because it really it was sort of a um I don't know, an exercise, in breath control, because I had to gasp before I sang and then, like, squeeze my diaphragm and, and just push it out. It worked. It wasn't the best. But luckily, after the nailing of, you know, into the cross, uh, we got another opportunity. It was much better. But it was the most wacky experience I've ever had. And, uh, you know, I never recommend running a lap around the building and then singing afterwards. But it was funny. I guess, to laugh afterwards, and I laughed with the twins, like, where were you, so it worked out, but that was my day, (laughs) it was crazy, it was crazy, but here we are, we're going to talk about some crazy, yeah, I know, speaking of crazy, that kind of was like I was in techness, or whatever that world is called, what's it called?
1: I think it's called techness.
0: Techness, and (laughs) I kind of felt like that, but before we get to techness, or whatever that is, because Tom's our expert for today. He's he's wearing his little cap and gown. And we get to talk call him Dr. Paneris this episode. I wanted to talk about an, uh, a comment that I got from Ian Miller, a.k.a. Ian Prime, on the Batman Universe p- podcast. And he wrote in last time, if you recall, in regards to Batgirl's presentation in Detective. And I said, oh, I really liked it. And then it came up on that podcast that, you know... It'd be great if Tanyan wrote Batgirl, or Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, or something like that. And I said, mm, you know, if I were to have my preference, I would rather have a female writer on Batgirl. Okay, so that's sort of the the setup there.
1: Okay, I was trying to remember, because I don't... Yeah, I don't know like, if, you must I don't have...
0: think we got into that here.
1: Yeah, because I'm like, I would have, like, I'm not trying to be like, I would have never said that, but I honestly would have never said that because I don't <laughs> read bat books, sure, so, sure. you know...
0: It was. Just, it's just my preference for a female writer. Okay.
1: No, no, so, no. I I, I told yeah. her, but I was like, I'm trying to remember who said Tynion could write a back Batgirl. Like, I was trying yeah. to remember where the conversation yeah, was, like, I'm sure well, did, was. Yeah, it was something else. Well, it was just
0: that he, I mean, he wrote a a good okay. Batgirl. That appearance was pretty good. And so why not just bump him up to a head writer of Batgirl. So, ah. so going into that, so this is his comment. I thought it'd be good to, to talk about it here as well as just inform the masses as well. So here we go. When Stella made her case against Tanyan writing a Batgirl title, I was very upset. I think the mindset that female characters should only be written by female creators is profoundly destructive to comics right now. Christopher Priest spoke eloquently about this attitude in a recent interview, and he linked it on the Batman universe. Uh, I don't have the full ink here, though I did write that. He calls it casting writers. I think for actors, you can sort of think of it as, what's it called? Type Type casting. casting. Yeah. The attitude that only black writers should write black characters drove Priest out of comics a decade ago, despite his extremely lengthy and successful career writing characters of all colors, men and women. He only returned to comics when Marvel and DC stopped, only offering him black characters, and the books that have resulted are excellent. A good writer can write men, women, gay, straight, religious, atheist. That's what makes him good, is their ability to research and imagine. Should only men write male characters? Of course not. Women have been historically ignored in comics, but forbidding men from writing female characters will do nothing but create hostility and a segregated mindset. Plus, it makes it more unlikely to see women and characters of all varieties, since the writers will be afraid to use any characters not like them, as happened to Tim Seeley when he was hired to write a black superhero, but left after a small group of fans pressured him to quit the title because he's white. We should want everyone to want to write characters who are different, not force everyone to write characters who are just like them. That goes against the whole point of reading and writing, because we want to know about other people, people not like us. I apologize for speaking so passionately, but I think it's incredibly dangerous and hurtful to say that any writer should be forbidden from writing a character because they do not share that character's category. So I'm going to give Tom some time to... um, to say his piece, but I would like to speak first, if that's okay.
1: Go right ahead.
0: Okay, since it, it was addressed to me, and yeah. I did, you know, I did first, of course, apologize to to Ian for um, any hurt feelings that there have may have been, and I certainly never meant it to be a vindictive comment that you know, oh, only women for women, that sort of thing. My approach to this was more like give more women opportunities to work in comics and that's sort of my first knee jerk because the percentage while better because my goodness new 52 you really only had gail simone and now we have more people it's still so small and so that's why you know if if you have the option between a, a male and a female writer i absolutely think that that the female well obviously you do need to think about quality of writing you know there's lots of stuff that goes into this but i think you know if they're on equal footing with their their abilities that I, I would hope that the woman gets a job just because it is so male-dominated and I would just love to see more opportunities. I completely understand about this, you know, Christopher Priest was getting tired of only being able to write black characters and you're absolutely right that good writers should be able to write any type of person. I mean, we have, I have a lot of favorite male writers who are writing wonderful moments in Barbara Gordon's history. You got Chuck Dixon who is all, an amazing writer. Anyways, I'm just loving all the stuff that I've been reading with uh, leading up to No Man's Land and all of the other stuff. But, with his work on Barbara Gordon and Birds of Prey is, is just amazing. And Brian Hugh Miller, both Ian and I really love his run on Stephanie Brown. So I will never say that, you know, someone can't do it. I absolutely agree with that. But I think the what I most disagree with, I guess, is this comment about their ability to research and imagine. And I think to a certain extent, you can absolutely research. But it can only, in my opinion, I would love to hear what Tom has to say. In my opinion, research can only take you so far and imagining can only take you so far. And I think that you really have to live it. And to, you know, take a quote from To Kill a Mockingbird, when Atticus is talking to Scout, I think, he says, uh, it's not enough to walk in someone's shoes, you have to walk in somebody's skin. And so I think there are just some people that I, I would never be able to fully understand what they have gone through. Uh, I could research the heck out of it, but you know, I, I can't understand what, what life they're, they're leading. And I guess I'll use her for the third time. (laughs) I did tell her that I've been talking about her, but I have a former student. I taught her last year who is first generation and uh, Hispanic and You know, I I took her to a soccer game one time and we were coming back and waiting for her mom. And I had learned a little bit about her story. She actually told me way more about her story yesterday which whew, uh even more profound respect but i turned to her with all respect and love in the world and i said you know i think that you have absolutely gone through things and lived a life that i just i can't imagine and i will never experience and she said you know i think you're right and so i can't i can't write someone like her because i think only she can do it and so that's why i'm very much for people you know writing the people that they know, and so that's the only thing. And and I know that you can research, but again, I just think that you can only it can only get you so far, and you really got to live it in order to to understand it. But that's that's basically my my thing. But I I do apologize for any hurt feelings there. Tom, do you have any thoughts on this? It sort of gets to an empathy question to a certain extent.
1: A lot of my thoughts are in line with a lot of yours. Um, I can totally see and i did i didn't ta- i didn't have the time to sit down and read the christopher priest interview i i will probably go back and read it where if you come with a specific experience or a type of story or you are of a specific color, gender, and sexual orientation, mm-hmm. you know, whatever that you could be pigeonholed into being thought of you are only the person who handles this type of story mm-hmm. and and that that's that's the case in any career you know that that's the case in. You can go into like you know different fields, and be, you you could find yourself um, pigeonholed into only handling certain types of aspects of your field because people say that oh you're the woman, so th- this is the woman's work at this in this industry. Mm. Go do the woman's work, you know. And, and I'm I'm generalizing broadly, generalizing just to just for the sake of brevity and the point. But I agree with you in that there's like. I think as a writer, it's a good exercise to try to write a character who is not like you, mm. but there's, you know, there's, there's exercises as a writers and there's publishing too, you know, so there's like, you know, when, when do you feel comfortable and, and who do you run it by to make sure that that particular um, experience that you do not have that you're trying to write about is as authentic as it possibly can be without coming from somebody who is, you know gay or trans or Latina or black or Muslim you know you know whatever. The this the argument the thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way about his comment is that his comment about how a good writer can write good men, women, et cetera, et cetera, is their ability to research imagine. It really skirts the line of the all lives matter argument, which really bothers me because that and this is me on the cynical side of things saying an argument like that opens the door for a publisher an editor whomever to turn around and, and, and shut the door for someone who is a minority or, you know, a person of color, somebody who's LBGQ, you know, wherever, because, well, we have somebody else who can write that story. We don't necessarily need to hire you. It's, it's Mm. kind of an odd. And I know, I know I'm, I'm, it sounds like I'm coming from like a very cynical place, but it, 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 Kind of dis it kind of dismisses what's coming, or, you know where those people are coming from, you know because it, yeah. it doesn't it, it your experience doesn't matter the story matters and so mm-hmm. like we don't necessarily need to hire you and I I agree with you in that the problem is not the problem is that they're not hiring enough people who are not white men mm-hmm. and. I honestly, and this is this is something that again, it, it's hard to get into in just one segment here because it could be. In, I mean, you've done an episode,
3: sure,
1: you know, um, and and it could be very much its own episode. But there are some very talented non-white male writers in the graphic novel field, and they are making, they are getting notoriety, and they some of them are making money hand over fist by working for neither DC or Marvel. They're working for Scholastic, Hmm. which is a traditional book publisher, which is one of the biggest graphic novel publishers in the world. Why? Because they're writing stuff like they're, they're like Raina Telgemeier. I I always mispronounce her last name. Um, She's writing like drama and sisters and, you know, and things like that. And, and um, you have my son, I went to the Baltimore Comic-Con last September with with my son, and he met Kaz Kubushi, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, who writes the Amulet series of graphic novels, and those are selling like hundreds of thousands, millions of copies. And he was like so pumped because he's read like all seven of them at this point. He got, he got, <laughs> he hadn't read like five, six, and seven. So we bought five, six, and seven and he had them signed and then we went to a panel and everything. And this guy's like something that like kids and libraries are picking up and everything. And like Marvel and DC, they're not publishing it. And it's like, you know, I don't think it's because they're discriminating against people, but it's like, I think I think on some level Marvel and DC are discriminating against story too much, or they had been for a little while. Maybe it's the model in which they're doing business, because mm-hmm. they're not pub- – you know, and, and book publishing isn't exactly setting the world on fire either. But, you know, I don't know. There's just something to say about the fact that if Marvel and DC continue to take the approach, well, you know, I don't know if we need to hire these people. We've got people who can just write these stories they're going to bleed creators and those creators are going to go to other companies and they're going to make, they're going to make more of an impact on the industry and they're going to make more of an impact on the medium and Marvel and DC and the superhero genre are going to start to get kind of backed into a corner of where, we're the little nerds again, Mm. you know, that we're the trash of the industry again, because they were, they're not publishing what, they're, they're, not in, in creators, they're not diversifying in their creators and they're diversifying their publishing. Off my soapbox.
0: <laughs> I, I think back to, to something that Carolyn Coca mentioned uh, when I interviewed her regarding her book, and it was this idea that I think they're going to consistently have problems until they start doing blind, not really auditions, but just not submissions yeah submissions and, and I, i'm afraid that doesn't that just doesn't happen and and right now you have to have a name attached to you to a certain extent in order to to get <laughs> get, well, get a same. job and it's a little open yeah. now because of the ya authors i feel like it's pretty diversified or it's getting better because they've brought in a whole host of new new blood with that with the young adult yeah. line
1: true although again they've uh, and this is where i'm i'm excited to see what they do but because i've been saying for years dc needs to shore up its all ages dc needs to find its its audience between the little kids who are buying tiny titans and etc and 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 scooby-doo and the people my age your age and you know Older twenty something teenagers who are buying their books, mm-hmm. Superman, Batman, etc. Mm-hmm. They need to find they need to find ki- people like my kid. My kid's starting to age out of com- of comics that he's reading <gasps> because he's well because like he's he's still too young. He he's not he's not that, as interested in superheroes as he is in fantasy, mm. and so he's like he loves adventure time, but he also likes some sci fi like Star Wars. But at the same time, like you know he he loves his big thing right now is Zelda. Oh, okay so like it's stuff like that so he's playing like breath of the wild all the time, which is which is awesome but <laughs> that's at the what my is like, playing all the
0: time but it's too. just
1: like but it's like where what are you going to do for that audience you know sure. and and are if this does not work are they just going to be like well we tried it again because they've tried this before and it failed they've tried young adult imprints and they didn't work but then again i don't know that if those young adult imprints had anything to do with superheroes so maybe this formula is going to work this time. Yeah, publishing's got its issues anyway. Publishing has issues where they still rely on literary agents to sell things to publishing houses, and it's a model that's been going on for longer than you or I have been alive. You know, mm. and and so there's there's like industries with these gatekeepers, and it's this antiquated system, and they're in some cases they're hemorrhaging money. So
3: wow.
1: <laughs> um. I really hope Professor Allen's listening because I really need like some sort of response as to the C-minus I just gave in an economic lesson. Oh. <laughs> so he can actually respond to be like, actually, Tom, let's clarify this because I don't think I was, was being very articulate. But Well, you're assuming just, he
0: actually has a college degree Wi-Fi? and actually teaches college.
1: This is true. This is true.
0: So Wi-Fi, goodness. Well, yeah,
1: wherever family. wherever he may be. But the, but the other thing is, is this is the other thing that. But this is you know, this is why I don't. This is why I don't enter the conversation about race and gender and whatever. Because
5: you're
1: a white on, man. Well, partially, but on Twitter.
5: Oh. <laughs> in wow. general,
1: it's not. <laughs> I don't like the binary thinking that goes into a lot of these things, like the either-or arguments that I see in a lot of cases. It's like you know, there's because the, there's a lack of nuance going on a lot of times and. And that gets me, but I do. I do tend to keep my distance because I'm a white man. I just want to see and listen to what people have to say before mm-hmm. I actually jump in, which I realize is not a, which is not what a white man is supposed to be doing. You know, I, as a white man, am obligated apparently to just kind of jump into any conversation and say, "Well, actually, I'm, I'm not very good at that though." Oh, my. At mansplaining. <laughs>
0: Maybe that's good.
1: I can, um, I can if I want to. But <laughs> hopefully,
0: yeah. you can change the world. Yeah, I think it's 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 tough. I don't I don't think there's an answer, an easy answer. Quite
1: honestly. Well, well, actually, still. So.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, just
1: kidding. Whatever. No, I, I, yeah. So yeah. I pretty much agree with you, but just in a much less articulate way.
0: Ah uh, yeah. Well, uh, Ian, I, I recommend. Well, I mean, if you have any further comments, please write back. And uh also maybe listen to that empathy to thing too, but I, I don't know, not saying that you don't have empathy Ian. I'm just saying mm-hmm. that maybe it'd be a, a good a good episode but
1: and, and the yeah. frustrating thing is that there are really good women writers out there for there comics, are. yeah, and unfortunately we're looking at like I like Gail Simone's backrol was just not something I enjoyed no. Animal parsons isn't either, and I feel really bad about that because it's, it has nothing to do with them being written in, women. Yeah, it's just that I just don't like the stories. Right, but like it's just and and there are some really great uh, things out there that, that people could be checking out on you know all over the place, mm-hmm. and um, I'd also like to see more recognition. I'm starting to see it finally, but like because you know when you hear about women in comics, you see a lot of like newer voices and stuff and mm-hmm. I think we need to I, I, thankfully I've seen a lot more credit lately to the like seven or eight names that prior to like 2000 were the really the only women whose names came up in comics who weren't colorists and that's um, you know like Louise Simonson and Karen mm-hmm. Berger and um, Barbara Randall Kiesel, Kiesel. yeah, yeah. Um, Jeanette Kahn yeah mm. <laughs> the publisher of DC Comics, for the better part, um, one of the writers who we're going to see here uh, today, Devin Grayson, who can be hit or miss, um, but like you know, um, Anne nacenti who was an editor at Marvel and, and wrote Daredevil, uh, Mindy Newell, um, who who did uh, who did a number of things at DC, so there, and and I don't see their names come up as often as I would hope um, when people discuss women in comics because I think in a lot of ways, like they paved the way for a lot of people. Um, because in the case of like Louise Simons and Louise Simons has been writing comics for like writing and editing comics for like 30, 40 years.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Not all of them great. Not all of them are, are, are terrible, but you know, it's just, she's, she was putting out comics on the level of, of, a, of what you see from like people like Dan Jurgens and, you know, like, you know, writers that you are kind of the workhorses of the industry. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah. so just just more credit more credit to those women too because uh, Ramona Fraiden that's another name she's she's an artist she's in her nineties and she still draws wow yeah so I've yeah. met her twice she's a very very pleasant woman
0: it was interesting also because Ed brought up the point on the Comic Cast that no woman has ever written Batman or any of the big the big titles well I should Batman or Superman or
1: Wonder Woman's remember. had.
0: Wonder Woman, yes, has
1: had like maybe Green
0: Lantern through. or or Flash, but now we've got the uh, Benson sisters. Did you hear that news? They're writing the Green Arrow ongoing. Oh, cool! So that's what they've been tapped for. But yeah, it's just sad. Like Louise no, Simonson, wrote,
1: yeah, wrote Louise Simonson wrote Superman.
0: Oh, okay. Louise
1: Simon, that's that's what I'm talking about. Louise okay. Simonson wrote Superman, the Man of Steel. The, but then, the, the, okay. Which was one of the four monthly titles in mm-hmm. the Triangle era, you know, the one that Mike Bailey covers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then she wrote; she co-created Steel.
0: Well, thanks for uh, soup splaining me there, Tom.
1: Yeah. Well, no, no, I
0: just. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I appreciate that. Yeah. 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 No one knew that on the uh, Comic Cast over there, so you just schooled a bunch of people. Well, I I guess, you know, this could be, uh, Tom and I were talking before the show that, well, we could go on and on about this sort of thing and empathy and, whew,
1: yeah. I was going to say, it it could be its own special of somebody's show. It could be a whole discussion on.
0: unfortunately, or I guess fortunately, it'd probably be six hours. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be five. (laughs) It'd be be like like the minority report part two. um, And we could have people call in. I don't really know what the question would be, but yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it it could be we could, it potentially. could be, yeah. I don't know what the- what, what question would you ask people if you want to get a call in show I don't how have know. you experienced empathy or how how do you how do you strive to i don't know how do you I, practice it maybe yeah. like get story we could get first hand accounts from people of like how did they on a day to day basis or is there a moment that they can think of where they exercise empathy
1: yeah or, that could yeah, be interesting. Because what I liked about the episode you did with Don and Harold. Um, <laughs> Harold and his purple crayon. Um,
0: <laughs> oh, man.
1: You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, uh, it those, sounds those familiar. Books, it's a children's book.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you guys did seek to define empathy as well, because it's like one sure. of those things where I don't think people necessarily it's have hard.
0: a yeah, common... Yeah.
1: Um, because I think sometimes people confuse empathy with compassion.
0: Yeah, or and, sympathy. Like, or th- oh, sympathy. I care yeah. about what you're going through. But caring about yeah. it is not the same thing as feeling what they're feeling and walking alongside them.
1: Yeah, and, and there are some people who, like, you can't necessarily ever authentically feel empathy f- with. But you can certainly... Like, like we need to have, like, an, a side conversation to that episode about how do I be an ally? Mm. Like, like or something to that And In fact, I sure. asked Don, did you ever do an episode, like... How, what does it take to be a good ally? Said so it came up in a context of uh, when they were talking about uh, trans individuals and trans rights and things like that, um, because I think that's a really, really important conversation to have, especially for you know white schmucks like me, you know who mm-hmm. who like who are very, very aware of their own privilege,
5: mm-hmm.
1: um, but at the same time, there are times where like I don't necessarily know. How to be helpful in a mm-hmm. way that is not inadvertently offensive to the person I want to support. Yeah. So I think that's a that would be a good conversation to have too. Yeah. Next week oh on God. Tom and Stella talk about empathy.
0: Ivy, yeah. Ivy, it's it's tough. It's the Stella and Tom this. empathy hour. <laughs> you know, our society is changing so quickly that we really need to have these conversations and, and include and include people.
1: But, mm-hmm.
0: Okay, well, uh, we're going to get into, uh, (laughs) we've been talking about lots of stuff that hasn't involved (laughs) what we're actually talking about, which is J.L.E. Titans. And of course, you know, this is funny because similar to Michael Bailey, Tom, he signed up for this probably a year in advance. He said something about jla titans and i had to scroll 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 through my excel sheet to get there and write his name and here we are finally come upon it tom before you even do your your old synopsis what is your history <laughs> what's your history with this storyline why did you want to be on this episode for the story
1: well <laughs> what are we going to start? all right okay. all right the the it's It it is um, the Titans, the new Titans, is the core of my comic collection. That's probably the best way to put it very succinctly. I did a series of, oh, I think it was like 41 blog posts over at pop culture affidavit titled My Life as a Teen Titan, Mm -hmm. where I started with issue 71 of the new Titans, which was the beginning of the Titans hunt in 1990. And I started with that issue. It It was my very first issue. And I went all the way to the end of the New Titans series, which was 130. But I also, like, went back to different parts. I talked about stuff like the Judas Contract and the Trigon stories and, like, all the things about the New Teen Titans from about 1980 to about 1996. And if you go to Pop Culture Affidavit, David, there is a tab called My Life as a Teen Titan where you can just scroll through and click on links to, like, all of those different posts. So if you want a detailed recap of, like, what it was like for me to collect the Titans when I was between the ages of 13 and 18 or 12 and 18 or whenever I started go ahead and 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 read that um you'll also I think there's a part where I address the fact that I I had about four or five letters published in the in the pages Mm -hmm. of New Titans at one point or another so I came to the Titans because of Nightwing because I started my very first, like, this is where I'm going to start collecting comics. Batman comic was Detective 617, which was part two of a three-part return of the Joker story. And it was this weird second part that you didn't necessarily need to read. In Bat- That was also like in Batman 450 and 451 back in uh, 1990. And then the next ep- issue of Detective was where Tim Drake's parents were kidnapped in Haiti. so And friends of mine had loaned me their copies of Death in the Family and then the chapters of A Lonely Place of Dying. And I was like, well, if Dick Grayson, who I remember being Robin from, you know, the 66 Batman show, you know, from Super Friends, you know, that sort of thing. If he's Nightwing, I'll start reading the Titans. So I started reading the Titans and it, it was all that. And then, so that series runs until 96 and then um where we're coming in is uh late 1998 and this is a series that after the better part of about two and a half years the actual original titans or the classic titans lineup or a lot of the classic titans characters were finally appearing in a book called titans it would eventually be called the titans uh, and it would run for about 50 issues until 2003 when that and Young Justice were both canceled. And then uh, there was the series called Graduation Day. And then Jeff Johns took over Teen Titans, which was Robin, Superboy, Kid Flash, Wonder Girl, etc., Raven, eventually. And then um, there was Judd Winnick's Outsiders run, which was Nightwing and, and his team and stuff. So, so New Teen Titans starts... Started in 1980. There was the Baxter series that started in 1984. That got canceled in 1996. For about two years, there was a series that DC published called Teen Titans, which was uh, made up of several kids who were not, had nothing, very little connection to the Titans, the original Titans. Um, They were financed by Mr. Jupiter, who was like a character plucked from the old Teen Titans series. Um, there were guest appearances by um, various members of the Teen Titans, the original Titans, like Nightwing and Arsenal and Tempest, etc. At one point, I, I, the Adam was the lead and everything, and it was just kind of this like...
0: Oh, so that answers one of my questions, because I wondered what the heck Ray Palmer had to do with the Teen Titans.
1: Yeah, he was the leader of that team. Wow. And okay.
0: So How did that come the- about without getting you too off track? Because he seems like an un—I don't know—that's not what I would expect. I
1: suppose I, I was trying to go back to okay. So he gets—it was one of those things where like, so Dan Jurgens created all these new characters who were like half human, half alien kids, but they didn't realize they were aliens until their like powers manifested <laughs> when they were when they were sixteen, seventeen years old, sixteen years old, I think. And um, so so Lauren Jupiter, who was this. You know, Daddy Warbucks type character takes them under his wing and finances them and calls them the Teen Titans. And the Adam had been de aged in zero hour. So the Adam was somebody who was basically the mind of a 30 to 40 year old man in the body of a 17 year old kid. And he was essentially the team leader. He was brought on by Jupiter to be the team leader. I see. That series lasted 24 issues. It never really took off the way I think maybe DC was hoping or Dan Jurgens was hoping. It's it's got some great stuff in it. It's there are parts of it that are very very dated. Mm. Um, I had a chance to talk to Dan Juergens about it like a, a yeah. number of years ago, and uh-huh. he uh, when he signed some of the books and he said that it was one of those things where had they not called them the Teen Titans, maybe it would have been more successful. It was kind of oh. like. The baggage kind of got in the way. It was they were the they were kind of the replacement teen titans and stuff. Um they do make an appearance in this in this series. So basically the idea here was that we're gonna launch a new Titans series. We're gonna call it the Titans. And I think they've run out of <laughs> they've run out of titles. They've had the Teen Titans, Teen Titans, the New Teen Titans, the New Titans, the Titans, hmm. Titans. At this point, we've got new and the, but yeah, so they said that we're going to launch a series called The Titans, and to kick it off, we're going to do this mega team-up series called JLA Titans, mm. where it's like, not only are you getting back the band back together, we're getting everybody together, and it's like, it's like somebody took a bunch of Teen Titans trading cards that had the entire history of them and put them on Devin Grayson's desk and said, here, put them all in, and... Well, we're gonna see. Yes, we <laughs> so, sure do. So, do you have um, any questions before? Any other questions before I go into just uh, giving you guys a very long synopsis?
0: Sure. Um, why is Raven an energy being?
1: Okay. At the end,
0: <laughs> I like. Did you put on your cap? <sighs> okay, let me tell you. Well, you
1: know how. So you know how. Um, you know how at the end of a uh, of my. You know how? Sorry. So let me start over.
0: Words?
1: Yes, they fail me. Um, Mike mentioned that Pat Garrahy was the colorist. Oh, you don't like that person, right? No, because he okay. ruined the New Titans. I see. Basically, we have, um, after Zero Hour, they put a new version of the New Titans together, I guess because this, the book had been failing. And they gave it a new editor. And the reason that Marv Wolfman like refuses to say this guy's name is... Oh. Not that the stories were terrible. It was that, like, basically, for the first time in writing the book for 16 years, Marvel was basically being told what to do by somebody Mm. in a way that he hadn't, he, as a comics veteran, hadn't experienced in a very, very long time. And he found, like, things were, plot was dictated to him, um, dialogue was changed without his knowledge. He was just, it was just a terrible, terrible um, time for him. And at the end of the series, he, Literally went to the publisher, I think in his storytelling of this, it's like he went to the publishers at like a DC Christmas party and begged off the book. He was like, he was basically, I quit. I can't do this anymore. And they said, what if we let you, they were like basically the books tanking anyway. What if we let you wrap it up the way you want to wrap it up? Mm-hmm. So he said, yes, they gave him a new editor who was basically the only there to be like a warm body as far as editorial is concerned. And they let him do what he wanted. There was this five part story called meltdown. That was the end of the team that the end of the new Titans Nightwing makes a single appearance on the last panel of the last issue. Because uh, they couldn't get Nightwing. Because I don't know what the relationship between Denny O'Neill and the Titans people were. But Batman had Nightwing at that point, And they were not letting him go for even a moment. So the the whole thing is that Raven's back again. She's still Evil Raven. And this time she's attacking Cory's home planet of Tamaran. And she destroys it. And it's, you know, this whole thing with these Trigon seeds. And at the end... They all attack Raven and, they, and Corey had been possessing her good soul self. And in the long story, the long and the short of it, and this is actually important to the story, is that of the original Titans who were on the cover of New Teen Titans number one from back in 1980, all right? Kid Flash was, while he was nowhere in the book, he was the Flash at this point. So I think Mark Wade was writing Flash stories. Donna Troy was a dark star and would be a dark star for a while until John Byrne decided to drive Terry Long off a cliff and completely ruin her backstory. Raven was cleansed of all this evil, but she didn't have a body form, so she's essentially this glowing, non-corporeal spirit being. And she doesn't get a body back until they place her in the body of a much, much younger girl in Geoff Johns' Titans, Teen Titans run. Mm. Cyborg, we will find out here Uh, Changeling Garlogan at that point was called Changeling and he was dealing with the fact that he'd been possessed by these demon Trigon seeds and he was cured of that and we'll see and he um, he had been sort of traveling with Cyborg and it's a key into here Uh, Nightwing was off on his doing his thing
0: what about Tara Markov why was she risen from the dead
1: Oh God, that's a whole other thing.
0: <laughs> you oh, can't my synopsize it in two seconds.
1: So, in in the Titans' hunt, a second Terra shows up. Yeah, she's part of the Titans Team Titans and her team T E A M, and they yeah, were okay. they were another they were another team during Zero Hour. They were all agents of Monarch were extant, and the only two to survive Zero Hour were the second Terra as well as Mirage and at one point in now up until up until about 95 96 there was no connection between the two the whole origin story that was she was made to look like Terra but she had no relation to the original Terra Markov and then there's this annual in 95 I think where Terra visits the grave of the old Terra and digs up the body but the coffin's empty so there was the speculation for a while is this actually the original Terra come back to life And, um, Marvel was like, Marvel was like, no, it's not. And they made me do that scene. But yeah, so she's basically, and she, she, she doesn't really, um, appear very often between now and the time she dies Mm -hmm. in the world war three storyline. That was part of 52. Okay. You know, Black Adam. They all fight Black Adam and stuff. Sure. She dies in that whole oh, story. Okay. But yeah, so she was not the resurrected. She was the second Terra, and I think there was a, I think there was a third Terra, and there was oh, an actual okay. explanation for that, courtesy of Jess Johns. But I don't have that. Okay. And I never read it, so I'm sure somebody can. I'm sure, somebody will come on and be like, "Well, actually, this is what happened."
0: Well, so they can. They are free to do that. Mm. <laughs> okay. Well, my history is really short. It's um, listening to Josh read this comic to his little ward, Ben. Uh, Thanks for the spoiler! And basically, I had no idea. I thought it was super obnoxious because the only thing that Oracle said was, Oh my God, the entire time. And I didn't really know. I didn't recognize what he was reading except that that's all she was saying. And so he would sometimes prompt me to say it. And then... I mentioned to him that I was recording this, and he's like, oh, that's what we were reading, and then I rolled my eyes. So I didn't really, I was going into this not too excited (laughs) because I already knew a part of what role Oracle would play. So that's my brief history. And now we'll sit back and relax and (laughs) eat some popcorn as Tom gives us the synopsis for JLA Titans.
1: And needless to say, I bought this off the rack Oh, because I w- well, it was in my pull box because I was very invested in this back in 1998. I bet you were. I will give you guys the um, the release dates uh, and the cover dates. They came out in there was a three issue miniseries came out on October 21st, 1998, L- November 18th, 1998, and December 30th, 1998, with a December 98, January 99, and February 99 cover dates. All three issues had covers by Phil Jimenez, um, and they were $2.95 each. The covers make up part of a much larger image, which was sold as a JLA Titans poster that was 29 inches tall and 65 inches wide. That is a huge Huge poster. Uh, it is not easy to come by these days. By the way, a quick check of eBay at the time I wrote this summary sees that one is being offered at ninety nine dollars and ninety five cents. And I'm sorry, but as much as I would love to own that poster, I'm not paying a hundred dollars for it. Shag has one.
0: Does he really?
1: He does. He does. He did he, he pay a
0: hundred dollars for it?
1: I don't think he paid a hundred dollars for it. I think he he got it back in the day. And, so uh, you're jealous, a- are you? Oh, yeah. He's reminded me of more than one occasion that he has it. Um, Anyway, this is also collected in the trade JLA Titans, the Technus Imperative. That came out later in 1998, uh, 99. Sorry. You can find this at a halfway decent price on eBay, which I did. Um, I didn't buy this in trade when it came out because I had the issues. Um, the trade includes all three issues as well as a story called Come Together, which is from the Titans' Secret Files and Origins Number 1. But for the sake of this particular um, episode, we're only going to be looking at issues 1, 2, and 3 of the mini series. I'm going to run down the creative team for most of the series here. You'll understand what I mean by most when we get to the end of issue 3. And I will uh, summarize it as a whole. The writer and co-plotter was Devin Grayson. The co-plotter and pencils were by Phil Jimenez. Andy Lanning did the inks. Jason Wright colors. Comicraft did the lettering. I refuse to speak the name of the pig who edited this book. Oh,
0: my gosh.
1: Well, I'm not the one who took forever to fire the jerk. So,
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh! 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 You're yeah. talking about E.B. Yeah! I, th- oh! Th- th- I thought you were pick. talking about the colorist. I'm like, it can't be that bad. No!
1: No! 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 <laughs> okay. I, I! I will not! I will not say that that I, suppose that I person's Wow!
0: Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry. Part. I threw part
1: off. one. <laughs> Part one is called One of Ours, and we open with a shot of Starfire, who is flying around and being chased by some sort of metal orb or device, while the narration talks about how when they were members of the Teen Titans, that core group could face anything, mainly because they were always a family above all else. We see that the person who is saying this is Gar Logan, aka Changeling, and he's talking to Tony Manetti, aka Argent, and um, this is where I would tell you that uh, this is at 98. The Wolfman Paris Titans haven't been together for the better part of about five years now. Uh, that team was torn apart by the possessed Jericho in the Titans Hunt storyline from the uh, from about 1990 to 1991. The team that rose from the ashes of, ashes of that story was together until the time of zero hour, where the, another team, led by Arsenal, took over and lasted for about a year before the new Titans was canceled, which issue one thirty and rereading those issues in the last few years. It was a mercy killing. Mm-hmm. In nineteen ninety six another Teen Titans Teen Titans title was launched which was written and drawn by Dan Jurgens. This is the one I already mentioned, where the team was mentored by Lauren Jupiter um, and led by the de-aged Adam. Characters were new. Uh, they, were the pre- they were all the children of women who had been abducted and pre- impregnated by aliens. The series lasted 24 issues. It was canceled two months before this came out. At the end of that series... Changeling teamed up with the team and then the team more or less disbanded but Gar stuck around with Tony. So we're joining these two pretty soon after that titles last storyline ended. Back in the story, Tony talks about how because they were all from the same race of aliens, and a race of aliens called the it's called it's spelled h why do why do why does like comic <clears throat> companies always put apostrophes in alien names? Because of uh, I guess the hsan I guess Zan Natal, N-A-T-A-L-L. Her Titans were quite literally a family. Gar makes a comment about how there are now no Titans, and when Tony asks him why he's not traveling through space with Cyborg, Gar says that Vic had become Siberian, and it got really weird. So Mm -hmm. the premise of back in that Meltdown storyline I mentioned was that Cyborg, way back in titans 104 or something like that he'd merged with a planet a race of beings called the technus and he'd kind of saved them and then he returned as this being called siberion and he got a little bit of humanity back so he and gar was supposed to go off and explore strange new worlds seek out new life and new civilization and boldly go where no one has gone before Mm -hmm. but as he said yeah he says but then things got really weird Mm. pay attention that'll be important later before Garkin can continue, however, an alarm sounds, and it's two of Tony's former teammates, Prism and Fringe. Uh, they burst through the door and they say something tore through half of the San Natal Empire and now is heading toward Earth. As she says that, we see Starfire get abducted by that orb thing, and then we see Omen, who is also Lilith, say, Disaster! And then teleport away. On the JLA Watchtower, Wally West, also known as The Flash, impatiently waits for some new technology to be installed. We see that Green Lantern, this is Kyle Rayner, is bothered by something that has to do with uh, the DC 1 million crossover. But when Wally asks him about it, Kyle just walks away. Something trips all of the sensors, alarms, and telepaths on the Watchtower, and soon the Watchtower computer is being hacked like crazy. Oracle then confirms that it's not just the JLA computers, it's technology all over the world. We get an interlude where Starfire appears to be with her parents and daughter on Tamaran. But she knows that she and Dick aren't married, her parents are dead, Tamaran is no more, and she has no children. Furthermore, the stars they're all gazing at are stars that one sees from Earth. And we get the first of what is a very helpful feature here. A file card-looking image with the full body and headshot of the hero along with the name, group affiliation, physiology, and powers and skills. So I guess whoever the bad guy is they're catching titans like they're pokemon or something. Oh. Above earth, one of those orbs appears outside the watchtower and then detonates while Kyle and Orion chase it, splitting into many, many, many more of them and head they all head for the earth. Back on Earth, things are going absolutely crazy. Technology is going haywire, disasters are breaking out all over, and the JLA is doing its best to fix the problems along with getting to the bottom of the crazy technology. Oracle tries to relay information to Superman from the Pentagon, but he's got his hands full. In Gotham, Robin and Huntress meet up. One of the things that abducted Starfire takes a look at Tim but declares a negative match and flies away. Oracle radios Batman and tells him that the invader hacked some of her profile data and then went back then went on to hack the Pentagon. In space the orbs go after Kyle and Wally as well as the Atom, getting all 3 of them. In Bludhaven, Huntress radios Nightwing and is trying to tell him about the orb that went after Robin, but he's abducted before she can tell him about it. Star Labs Orbital 4 picks up something heading through the solar system and calls Dr. Sarah Charles, the former girlfriend of Victor Stone, who is in his old apartment with his grandparents. She's annoyed at first, but then hears that there is something huge, and it's headed straight for Earth. We cut to Paradise Island, where Penelope and Hippolyte wonder... Hippolyta uh, wonder where Donna Troy went and we see that she's been abducted as well. In Markovia, the second Terra is taken. In Metropolis, the four Titans from the very beginning of the issue, Fringe, Prism, Argent, and Changeling are also taken. Wally is abducted and just as Starfire was shown Tamaran and her parents, he sees Barry Allen. We get a glimpse of where he is being kept, which is next to where Raven is being kept. Green Lantern and Adam, they were also abducted. The Martian Manhunter tells Orion that the orbs that abducted his teammates are headed for the east coast of the United States, but he shouldn't fire at them. He also says that there is some sort of light following them, which we see to be Raven's soul self. It's then that Steele points out that he knows what's causing all of the attacks and catastrophes on Earth. The moon has been swallowed by a gargantuan structure that looks like a hodgepodge of fused-together spaceships and similar structures. And simultaneously, everyone loses contact with Jean. Under the sea, Tempest has been abducted. Tempest, by the way, uh, is the new name for Aqualad. In Window Rock, Arizona, Arsenal... Roy Harper, once known as Speedy, has been abducted. In St. Petersburg, Red Star, Panther, and Wildebeest have been abducted. This is pre-decapitation and being split in half by Jeff Johns. Oh my! On a certain island in the East River off the coast of Manhattan, Batman watches orbs arrive and radios the rest of the Justice League, telling them to hone in on his position and assemble there. Plastic Man shows up having scouted the area, but then says you already already know what I was looking for, don't you? And up on the moon, John is able to re-establish a telepathic link, much to the chagrin of Orion, who is screaming about not giving up like he's Khan at the end of Star Trek Two. He does provide information about what's been taken by this thing and then starts attacking it. That makes Oracle go nuts, because all of a sudden she starts getting alerts and feedback like crazy. She then deduces that whatever this is, this thing is reacting to Orion's attacks by retaliating and doing damage to the Earth. Orion continues, despite everyone's protest, and we see that Supergirl and Damage have also been abducted. And I believe at this point Supergirl was in the middle of the Peter David series, so it was the Linda oh, yeah. Danvers Supergirl. That would make
0: sense, yeah, because yeah. there's that one million issue. Yes.
1: As Impulse and Rose Wilson are abducted, John and Barda finally get a handle on Orion, before the three of them, put plus Steel, are randomly transported to India. The majority of the JLA gathers at this particular island in the East River, and Batman informs them that this is a hostage situation. Superman radios Orion and tells him to back the hell down from whatever is engulfing the moon because it's causing chaos on Earth. Inside his orb, Wally realizes that Barry's not real, and then Raven appears. She says that she is real and frees him so they can find Nightwing, who is in a fantasy where Batman is all happy and hugging him. He walks away from Batman and then heads into Gar's fantasy world where he's back with the Doom Patrol and is still being called Beast Boy, much to his chagrin. He and Gar join Wally and Raven and realize that all the Titans are here, including Mal, Bumblebee, Omen, and Batgirl. I mean, Flamebird. And Nightwing's response, by the way, Nightwing's response, that, man, somebody was thorough.
0: I noticed that. That was, I enjoyed that.
1: He is such a Richard. Um, it has also taken Mirage Risk Joe Dominion and Captain Marvel Jr. Uh, CM, who was being called CM3 at points in this in this particular uh, era, and he was a member of the, those Teen Titans when they expanded their membership uh, in the 96 series. All right, here we go. The JLA has finally arrived in this island. Zoriel and John realize that the Titans are still alive and in perfect hibernation. The other members grouse that they're useful elsewhere, and it's then that Oracle informs that she has heard from the Marvel family, and Batman already knows that Captain Marvel Jr. has been taken. He then says, Our enemy is meticulous and well ahead of us. Though I remained convinced that the most efficient way to end the siege against the moon, and by extension, Earth, is to terminate our foe's technological stronghold here, by now you must realize where we are. Titans Island and the option of destroying it is not viable, as long as the Titans are on it as hostages. And if anybody is unfamiliar with the concept of Titans Island, this is the island in the East River off the coast of Manhattan, where during the Wolfman Paris, Titans issues, Titans Tower was located. The JLA wonder who would do this, as do Nightwing and the Flash. But Gar, who nobody is listening to, because they never really did anyway, has already figured it out. It's Victor Stone, a.k.a. Cyborg. That's where issue one ends. Before I move on to issues two and three, I want to point out that I threw a ton of names at you, and a lot of them are really obscure Titans characters who hadn't appeared in a comic book in years. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to bore with you all the details. There are two sites. I already mentioned my series of 41 blog posts called My Life as a Teen Titan. One of the best Teen Titans sites out there, and I don't know how often it's updated anymore, but there was a site for a long while that Bill Walco helped found um, called Titanstower.com and had just this massive database of stuff on various Titans characters. And if it's still up, I recommend going there and just getting lost because it's really, really a fun site to go through. But yes, if there... Oh, and if there is an obscure unknown character who I who I think you all should know more about because they play an important role in the story. I will expand on that as we go. Um, and, of course, feel free to ask Stella if you have any questions at any time, like, who is this, who is this, or, any, or anything. anything. <laughs> I
0: had so many that I just decided to stop writing them. So I okay. just focused on ones that were that seemed important to the plot.
1: Okay. Issue two. Issue two is called The Generation Gap. It opens with Orion being orion and screaming about how batman brought everyone to the island to save a handful of children (laughs) batman is his usual rational self and the jla is rational as well knowing that there's definitely a reason that the titans have all been abducted and they may hold the key to saving the world beneath the surface wally speeds around and deduces that changeling is right cyborg is the only person who isn't there gar finally gets the chance to explain what happened to Vic, and this is where I am actually going to explain just a little bit of Cyborg's recent history. I did a little bit earlier, but I'm going to go into a little more detail here. In New Titans 75, Jericho, who at that point had been possessed by the evil souls of Azeroth, launches a rocket containing Cyborg's body and blows it up. It crash lands in Russia, where he's found by Red Star and various Russian scientists who rebuild him. However, he's mostly machine now, um, and he's not conscious. In other words, he's basically a vegetable that is very, very armed. Uh, Nobody's able to help him. Even a contingency plan from his long-dead father goes completely awry in a a two-part story uh, that was in the Showcase anthology series. Until there was a four-parter called Terminus, the final fate of Cyborg, where he merged with the planet Technus... The planet Technus, which, by the way, is the offspring of Swamp Thing and some alien being that he mated with back in like, Swamp what? Thing number 65. I'm not kidding. It's like an editor's asterisk, and I went and got the issue from my LCS, and I'm like, oh my god, they dug deep. Um. Anyway.
0: Sounds like mythology.
1: It's Alan Moore's Swamp Thing is really good. Killing Joke is is trash, but Alan Moore Swamp Thing is 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 very very good comics. I did
0: read yeah the first volume of it, and I mm-hmm. uh, off of uh, EM squared uh, mm-hmm. her recommendation. And I enjoyed it.
1: He merges with Technus. He flies off into space. He's not seen again until the meltdown storyline that I already mentioned. In that story, he's now known as Siberian. He helps the Titans finally defeat evil Raven and. The less said about that whole thing, the better. At the end of the New Titans, number 30, like I said, Raven's good. She's a light-based being. Cory is going to help set up a new Tamaran. That's what gets destroyed in the beginning of Final Night. Siberian and Gar go to explore strange new worlds. And Gar Gar recaps all of this, and, and he says that over the course of their time together, Cyborg became less and less human and more and more robotic, bent on collecting everything. So, in a way, Gar basically says... Vic has gone full V'ger, and by going full V'ger, Vic is trying to put his family back together. Dick sees that at the core of the island is an energy source, and that may be his consciousness or his soul. Raven explains a little more, noting that Jarus Minion is with him. Now, Jarus Minion, it should be noted, is an alien teenager who came to Earth after his planet was destroyed by a disembodied Simon. You know, the villain with the glass dome over his mm-hmm. brain who literally got his brains blown across Brainiac's ship in Crisis on Infinite Earths. In a scene that was very much like when John Byrne drew Dark Phoenix. Like the, the scene where Simon destroys the world, destroys Jairus Minion's planet, it's kind of like when Byrne drew Dark Phoenix destroying the, the Asparagus People planet in the Dark Phoenix saga.
0: Are they actually called the Asparagus People?
1: No, that's just a, a nickname. Um, I'm not the one who came up with the nickname. By
0: Tom or by. No, no, no. I'm not the one who
1: came up with the nickname. I think they were okay. called like the Dabari or something. Oh, okay. um, his race, Jarus Minion's race, was pacifist, but they built a weapon called the Omegadrome for the purpose of defending his planet against apocalyptic threats. Uh, Minion's parents sent him out of their planet in the Omegadrome, Omegadrome kind of like, you know, Kal-El and Krypton, et cetera, And he met and joined the Titans. When Minion was with Vic and Gar, he allowed Vic to use the Omega Drum because it has properties much like you know, the T-1000 in Terminator 2. It can kind of mm. morph. So he helped him use it to collect things. And this, Raven says, started to leech away Vic's humanity. And he's captured the Titans because his data files say that he has to assemble this collection of people who were important to Victor Stone. Raven says that she was trying to reach his soul and had to abandon him, which is when he attacked the moon. He does not mean to harm the Titans, Wally notes this by pointing out that Tempest's tank has water in it, and he goes and looks for a way out of there, while Dick and Raven head back into the various virtual reality scenarios so they can free all their friends. We get a two-page spread that features Bette Kane making a virtual reality Robin played tennis, flex, and bend over for her. Terra 2 apparently being put on the on trial for the crimes of Terra 1. Mm-hmm. Tempest being lo- loved by something called Aqualetafin, a woman who is a combination of all the women he's ever loved. Mal and Bumblebee being confronted by both of their parents. Roy Harper seeing Oliver Queen in Black Canary and yelling that Ollie is dead because this is during the Connor Hawk sure. um, Green Arrow years prior to Kevin Smith bringing Ollie back. Red Star Panther and Wildebeest living the suburban life with Red Star's lobotomized father. Uh, he had been a supervillain in a three-parter that Phil Jimenez uh, drew and Louise Simonson wrote back in uh, 1993. Back on the surface, Oracle says that the planet is still in chaos, and more of the orbs have been sent out to catch or capture others, who we are not sure of yet. The Flash signals John and basically shows everyone where there is a crack in the armor. Superman uses that as an opportunity to hit it hard and open up a bigger hole. The League heads into the hole and meets up with the Titans, most of whom have been freed. Gar asks around for help with Vic while Plastic Man, Steel, and Wonder Woman look at the main power source and see that this is what they need to attack, but they still need to get everyone else out. Back in VR land, we see more Titans. Impulse and Prison talk about being raised in virtual reality environments damage is surrounded by the entire Justice Society, who they are telling they are all telling him that he's a chip off the old block. Supergirl is at what looks like a wedding, possibly of her parents. I don't remember much about the Peter David run, although I did read it. So I think maybe her parents weren't together at the time and they were anyway. A- Raven Freeze Sorry. Well,
0: I was just going to say a brief time. I guess with this, they should be coming back together because once she reveals that she's like both people, her mom has this crisis of faith and then her father. and But then they start getting back together. So yeah, I'm I, not sure. But it's a very <laughs> – it's a confusing book, but I really like it.
1: Yeah. I, I remember liking it too. It's just been a very long time since I read it. So mm-hmm. Raven frees those three people. She leaves Dick to free the last two, Starfire and Donna Troy. Corey is still in her Tamaran VR simulation and Dick appears. They have a quick reunion where they each say it's good to see one another, and while up top, John pressures Batman that Nightwing is fine. Uh, Sorry, John assures Batman that Nightwing is fine and alerts him to the presence of Catwoman, whom Batman noticed forty seconds ago. Whoa. Dick goes to see Donna, who is simply sitting in a white space playing with her son, Robert. He says there was a car crash. Bobby didn't make it. He, this isn't real. I know, she says, with tears streaming down her face. Once Dick and Donna are out, Orion and Barda start firing at the energy source, and all of the empaths start feeling pain. Gar stops them and appeals to Superman, saying that they're literally trying to destroy Vic's soul, and they have to stop. Superman doesn't believe him. Green Lantern is with Superman, but Flash says that Vic's not an enemy. He's a friend in trouble. Sides are chosen, the Titans begin to grit their teeth. Gar says, If you try to hurt him again, I'll stop you. Orion, of course, replies, I believe the Earth saying goes, You and what army? This one! Yells wow. Gar. And we get this beautiful JLA versus the Titans splash page that Jimenez signed after Perez, of course, it says uh, in the signature. And it is time for a serious superhero brawl. Uh, Risk goes after Orion and gets knocked aside. Tempest Blast, Aquaman, Green Lantern, and Flash start fighting. Siberian responds by creating a battle arena made up of various places that are personally important to the various Titans. It's like when you have like a f- arena fighting game and you unlock some sort of like <laughs> special stages that <laughs> like, you know, now you could play it like like earning boards in Mario Kart or something. You know? No more Moo Moo Meadows for me. Um, oh, Moo Medals! So I know that. On, so, <laughs> Siberia, so he creates all these various places. Starfire goes after Orion while Captain Marvel Jr. goes after Superman. Batman and Nightwing start arguing because Bats just basically wants to destroy Vic and Dick wants to save him. What follows are four incredibly busy four-page spreads where three things are simultaneously happening. On the sides of the spreads that are the faces of Batman and Nightwing, who are having the argument over... Um, they're, they're the ones having the argument, so that that's the sides of the of the page. One is Batman and one is Nightwing. It's the, the spreads, and they're arguing whether or not Vic should be saved. Nightwing argues that Vic has a soul and he's like family. It's their obligation to save him. Batman basically calls shenanigans on that and points out that Vic... What Vic is doing to the planet, saying that Nightwing should mourn his friend and move on to do what he pledged to do all those years ago when Batman made him swear an oath by candlelight. Whoa. I'm Batman. In the middle of the spreads are the Titans and the JLA fighting. Diana gets ready to face off against Donna. Red Star goes supernova against Martian Manhunter, and John is temporary Larry, distracted by an image of his wife. Fringe and Bumblebee fight against Zoriel and Superman and super, after Superman beats off Captain Marvel Jr. Zoriel fights them off but is attacked by Supergirl, and she was in her Linda Danvers avenging angel persona. Flameberg and Panther take on Huntress and Catwoman. Starfire and Orion go completely crazy against one another until Raven intervenes and soothes his anger. John sees that the illusion of his wife is not real and it's actually Mirage, and he goes off on her for that. On the bottom of these four spreads, and continuing on to several others, is something that Oracle points out to Batman while he's arguing with Nightwing. Probes are collecting more heroes. This time, they are allies of the Titans. In San Francisco, we get Thunder and Lightning. In Virginia, we get Azrael. No, not that one. In Blue Valley, we get Francis Kane, a.k.a. Magenta. In San Francisco, again, we get Chris King, who is dial H for hero. In New York, we get Duella Dent, A.K.A. Harlequin. In Africa, we get Deathstroke, who manages to reject the who manages to reject the probes call. We also see it pick pick up Tim Drake, Robin, who is followed by Superboy. They the probes take a look at the New Hawk and Dove, but they leave them alone. And then they run through a list of the Titans dead. Uh, Don Hall, who was the first Dove, Golden Eagle, the first Terra, Jericho, Cole, Jason Todd, the second Robin, Cousin Oliver, I mean, Danny Chase, who was also Phantasm, Aquagirl, Don Granger, who was the second Dove, and Hank Hall, who is not Hawk anymore, but is now Extant. And I believe Extant at that point was still alive. Back to the fighting and Batwing argument... John points out that the environment is protecting the Titans. Batman asks him to open a telepathy channel to Nightwing and contacts the Titans to tell them that the distraction is working, but Siberian is protecting the Titans. And that's a new variable. Dick's all, what? This whole battle is a ruse? You're fighting with us just so you can sneak up on Vic? And Batman's all, duh, I'm Batman. Meanwhile, Rose Wilson actually tries to fight Big Barda, and thankfully Omen teleports Barda away while Argent blasts GL and Prism prevents the atom from doing anything to her. Batman tells Nightwing and Martian Manhunter that it will take thirty minutes to dismantle Siberian's CPU and the V'ger that's around the moon, which gives Dick the window he needs. Raven takes him to Donna, who is telling Diana that her friends are all she has left, and after they whisk Donna away, Tara hits Wonder Woman hard. Steel counters with his hammer, which Mal sends through a portal. When he grabs Roy Harper, it's just as our favorite redhead, red-headed lech is watching Flamebird and Huntress in an epic girl fight that Batman has to break up in hilarious fashion. When he grabs Garth, he's still going toe-to-toe with Aquaman, and when Nightwing grabs Wally West, the Flash is still arguing over team allegiances with Green Lantern. Raven speeds off, but not before Changeling, who had been in an epic morph-off with Plastic Man, turns into a bug and flies into her soul-self, hitching along for the ride. As she heads off, we see the Titans' allies as well, as Secret, Arrowet and Wonder Girl, who, along with Superboy, Robin, and Impulse are, of course, Young Justice, and JLA allies Power Girl, Elongated Man, Mary Marvel, Mr. Miracle, Black Canary, Captain Marvel, and Green Arrow. Batman orders everyone to stop fighting and tells everyone that the Titans team is on its way to make contact with Siberian CPU, which is on the moon. We then close at issue number two with two pages of schematics of all the various Titans headquarters, along with the amalgam that Siberian will be building into the island, and this is going to be important for the Titans series that follows this mini series because that's going to be their headquarters. Issue number three is titled All in the Family and it starts with the JLA Titans' Moonstrike team getting ready to take on the V'ger. There are Superman, Wonder Woman, Mary Marvel, Green Lantern, Guy Gardner, Martian Manhunter, Power Girl, who's apparently changed costumes, Captain Marvel, the Atom, Captain Marvel Jr., Big Barda, and Orion. Superman checks in with Oracle for a status update, and she tells them that they don't have much time, and then she asks if, this, if the additional team members are helping, and if Gardner is making an ass of himself yet. John says that all assistance is appreciated and tells her to do her job. Batman then gives the moon team its plans and gives Oracle her marching orders to coordinate the earthbound efforts at damage control, which is basically where every other Titan and jla air is going to be. Meanwhile, the five original Titans float within Raven's soul self, and then they leave with Changeling revealing himself and reminding his teammates that Vic is his best friend, and they would have done the same thing. Stowing away, that is, against orders. Raven leaves, while he does some recon, Arsenal fires an arrow that makes Vic angry, and everything around the six of them goes white. On the island, Raven returns to say that the technology on the island needs to be ready to receive Victor's soul if they're successful with communicating with him. Basically, what's going on is that there are two CPUs, a main one on the moon and another one on the island. If the attack on the moon V'ger is successful, then Vic will try to download all of himself to the island which is what they want because it's there where he will be contained and hopefully not be able to do more harm. The only problem, as Steel and Bumblebee point out, is that the island's CPU may not be, be big enough to contain all of that. Around the world, the Titans and JLA try to contain the various natural disasters that are going on, which includes a volcano in Atlantis that Aquaman fights, lava flow in Chicago that Starfire and Supergirl try to hold back, and a falling sky that Argent tries to stop saving from saving New York. Falling sky? That doesn't make sense. I a meteor shower or something. I don't know. I'm not going <laughs> to go back and look at it. Um, on the moon, I, it's like, what was I typing? On the moon, Green Lantern okay. uses his ring and Wonder Woman uses her invisible jets material to create ah. a net around the moon. This net is tangible enough for the heroes to grab onto and push it so that the moon can maintain its orbit. Oracle reports that this isn't causing any problems on Earth. Mr. Miracle and Guy Gardner, along with Orion and Barda, make up the strike team that is going to get back into the watchtower to get the new Genesis equipment, the tech that's on the watchtower, up and running. However, the prognosis is negative, and hey, Cyborg captured the Millennium Falcon. In the Moon CPU, Roy, Garth, Wally, Donna, and Dick, all try to appear to cyborg Siberians humanity with Gar basically then yelling, "Hey, Rust Bucket, let go of the frickin' moon already, will ya?" He goes on to lay into him about what he's doing and how his actions have consequences. While Oracle directs us to the various disasters that are going on, we see Azrael, Zoriel, and Arouet take on storm damage in New York. Prism and Mirage fight a fire in Munich. Rose Wilson and Risk help with a hospital in Tallahassee. Impulse and Green Arrow deal with a lightning storm in Seattle. Will the Beast and Black Canary fend off earthquakes in Venice. Robin and Flameburg save orphans in Metropolis. Red Star and Thunder and Lightning repair flood damage in Bangkok. Panther and Harlequin fend off a zoo stampede in San Diego. Damage the Secret and Jodo work in Kiev. Fringe, someone I think is who is the second Doctor, Light and Wonder Girl are in London. Magenta and Superboy are in San Francisco. And Batman and Catwoman are in Gotham city. After getting frustrated with his inability to get through to Vic, Gar yells that he wants Vic to construct the person he'll listen to since none of them has succeeded. Vic then creates a construct of his father, Silas Stone. Silas starts talking to Vic and all of a sudden everything stops. Vic begins downloading himself into the island with Raven guiding him along the way. Inside the watchtower, Barda and company get everything back online. In the moon CPU, the Titans spot the Omegadrome, with Vic, which Vic had morphed from a battlesuit into a power source, but before they can do anything, the V'ger around the moon starts to break up and take off. Many are still operational enough to take off on their own, and Superman directs the JLAers who were helping with the moon's situation to destroy the unmanned pieces of space junk before they hit the atmosphere. Green Lantern wonders where the Titans are, but Wonder Woman says that Earth is their priority. Meanwhile, Guy Gardner blows things up. On Titan's Island, the CPU is too damaged and too small to hold everything. So Raven redirects everything into her soul self for as long as she can hold it. While in the Watchtower, the Atom realizes that they can keep the debris from the V'ger from falling to Earth by creating a huge magnet with the Watchtower. Meanwhile, Nightwing realizes that if they can get control of the Omegadrome, they can morph it into a ship and fly that home. All over Earth the Titans and JLA teams turn defending off falling debris. Above the Atlantic, Power Girl holds off sorry, Power Girl holds one and then damage touches it and blows it up. In Metropolis while Lex Luthor looks on and drafts a memo to employees to go home and be with their loved ones while they think about what their savior superheroes have brought upon them. Terra tries to figure out how to save the city, but is interrupted by Wonder Woman. Terra apologizes to Diana, who says no apology is necessary. Cersei watches this from Brazil and wonders why Diana always seems to prevail over problems. In Houston, John and Argent save the city from a falling ship. The Joker revels in the chaos from his cell in Arkham, as the Joker is want to do. And in Cairo, Starfire and Supergirl help the Marvels destroy some falling debris. Dick's idea to use the Omega Drome doesn't work because it's obvious that Vic is still connected to and controlling it. Omen shows up to deliver bad news that Vic's going to be lost because they can't contain his download, and she is there to at least save them. Gar doesn't accept this and says that maybe the Omega Drome can hold all of that. Omen says that she can take the Omega Drome back to uh, Earth, but not all of them with it. Dick tells Gar to go with Omen. And he does this in the nick of time because Raven's soul is cracking and it's about to explode. She then fires Victor's essence into the Omegadrome and, when we wa- and we watch it morph into a battle suit and then into a human-looking form, that of Victor Stone. In space, the five founding titans float around knowing that they are liable to run out of oxygen soon and they'll be sucked into the vacuum of space. So they say their last goodbyes to one another. But then someone says... You know, Donna, you really should have returned my calls. It's Green Lantern, oh and he's gosh. here to take them home.
0: Didn't we talk about a Green Lantern and her dating? Oh, oh God, no. I it love was, them um, as a couple. It was, shoot, it was that thing I did two anniversaries ago. It was that special girl frenzy. Weren't they dating a girl frenzy or like he visited her apartment?
1: Is this I sound familiar so? to you? It, it, it sounds familiar. I know. I had a number of, of issues. Like, I was buying Green Lantern when, when they were together because she was in the book. So, yeah, I, I always liked them as a couple. John Byrne ruined it. So, Oracle broadcast that the debris seems to have stopped falling. And she wants to find out why. Guy Gardner takes credit for this, but it's actually Francis Kane, a.k.a. Magenta, who is using her powers to reboot the technology in the Watchtower, which they will use to pull the debris away from Earth. The five original Titans are reunited with their mentors and their mentors' friends and family, and Vic and Gar are reunited as well. We then have an epilogue, which has art by Mark Buckingham and Wade Von Grawbadger. They would be the art team on The Titans, the ongoing series that spins out of this miniseries. It is a party at Warrior's Bar in New York City. Run by DCU's own Guy Gardner. It's a party whose highlights include Aquaman and Garth mending their differences, Superman drinking milk and not beer, of course. Uh. Impulse chasing plastic man around the room and requesting various shapes. Gar and Vic catching up and talking about Vic's new body before Tara interrupts him. Mirage and Roy talking about diapers before she apologizes to Jean by having her hold having him hold her baby daughter. Half the woman in the room checking out Nightwings, but as he reconciles with Corey, Wally and Donna talking about the fighting that was going on between Flash and Green Lantern, several people ribbing Orion for actually smiling at one point at the end of this whole thing, and Captain Marvel Jr. apologizing to Superman for hitting him. Finally, Guy unveils the newest addition to the monuments found within Warriors, statues of the five original Titans as they appeared in their first appearances back in the Silver Age. And we close out with Wally asking if they were really ever that young, to which Garth replies, I'm afraid so. But what's really amazing is that despite every known force in the universe trying to pull us apart, we're looking back on all of this together. The end? The end.
0: Wow. Take a breath? <gasps> I think that was a 15-minute...
1: <laughs> That's a long summary. <laughs> Next yeah. month, we're going to do JLA Avengers.
0: Heavens above. <laughs> I think I already... um bragged on you last time about how you always come in really prepared and here i you was are. really even, excited it, for this. even more <laughs> even more than the other one <clears throat> so do you enjoy doing your synopses
1: i really enjoyed doing this one but then again this i i have always loved this series so i was like i was looking forward to this so i i like doing the others too because it's just it they're they're fun to to dig into because the comics at least the ones that we've been doing lately the jla comics and stuff have been um fun to read so if there were bad comics i don't think i'd be as enthusiastic
0: yeah there you go well here we go question sure for whom is this story written or who is the intended audience would you say
1: new titans fans okay in other words fans of the title the new Titans okay. the new Teen Titans, the George Perez Marv Wolfman Titans who had missed their team and DC wants them to see hey we're getting the band back together and there's gonna be a new series and you should you should buy it So here's everybody it's an encyclopedia this is this is a this is a lot of fan service. For And I don't think it's for JLA fans more than it is for Titans fans. But that's, again, again, that's why I bought it back in
0: 1998, 1999. So. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Let me, I would like to say that this was, for me, as a, let's just call me a new reader,
5: mm-hmm. overwhelming.
0: Overwhelming. Mhm I felt overwhelmed there there was just I, luckily they focused on the core members, which was good, even though there were a couple people. The girl with the pale skin what was her name argent yes, there were some people that I wasn't recognizing, but the little cards at the bottom it was slightly <laughs> overwhelming, and I was texting you. And you had said that oh that one set of cards were like the dead people, and I yeah. I was like oh, I didn't even catch that those were dead people, so for new yeah, says, <laughs> I think it I says deceased
1: re- all the way at the end of, at the bottom of okay
0: heart. it was hard for me to see the the fine print but I should have like ogled it more I suppose so I totally agree with you I'm glad that you said that because for me I just thought wow this is really large and it's jam packed do you think that this story would have served would it have served it to be not compressed? Because three issues, and the first th- one was the longest, and then it had, but the other two were were pretty close to it. But three issues with this amount of information, what do you think?
1: They were three like double sized issues, I think. Okay. I don't know. I don't have the individual issues in front of me, but I I want to say they were bigger than your average comic. So it, but it is compressed into. Um, a, a longer story that is compressed. I would have said it a six a, a four issue or a six issue might have actually been a little more um a little less um uh, overwhelming mm-hmm. maybe or you would have had a little more room to breathe. But yeah, but for the most part, um, I think they were oversized issues, and I'm vamping because I'm looking up.
0: That's okay. I tapes. enjoy your vamps.
1: But yeah, but like I said, it's but and, and your comment about them, your comment about them focusing on the core original Titans is apt. I think they went for the, um, the more recognizable heroes, uh, Argent, Tony Minetti was probably the, one of the more recognizable characters to come out of that teen Titans series. And I think they focused a little more on her because she was the one character out of that series who was in the Titans series that was after this. So I think they wanted to establish her a little bit so that readers when they saw her in the new ongoing series uh, would know who she is a little bit. Um, That team was uh, the only character that doesn't really make much of an appearance in this um, particular miniseries. But that does get a place in the Titans uh, team is Jesse Quick because she'll be she'll be on that team. A quick check says that, yeah, these were this was a 38 page book. Okay, so that's. You know that's three thirty-eight page issues as opposed to three twenty-two page issues. So it is a little more. Connected. They probably could have done a fourth. Maybe they wanted to get everybody like they wanted to get to the main series as quickly as possible. You know, maybe schedules being the way they were. You know, I, I don't mm-hmm. know what the what the reason for going for a three issue mini instead of like a four or six issue mini
0: mm-hmm.
1: were at the time. So
0: okay, I'm trying to think if I want to upset you now or later. So I, maybe maybe I'll upset you later. and start off with uh, the positives for me and we can. well actually I have one other question sure and it was about Catwoman and whether you found that random or not her being in this issue uh, in this story
1: that was random I can't remember if she I know she was like would pop in and out of the JLA sometimes I don't know why (laughs) she was there it's
0: kind of yeah it was really
1: weird maybe it was a Devin Grayson thing I don't know
0: and you could kind of argue the same about Dinah, but at least Dinah has, you know, this relationship with Oracle and, and there was that interaction there where Oracle was happy to hear Dinah. But Catwoman was Roy, number one, she was sneaking around. It's not like she arrived with everyone on mass and then yeah.
1: Dinah's not random. No. Roy's there.
0: Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So she's got multiple <laughs> so, connections. Yeah. She's got. Yeah. But Catwoman. Yeah. I wasn't too sure Cat, yeah, about that, that one.
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't. know what the. I don't know what the purpose of having Catwoman in there is, was either.
0: And then I guess my final question to you. I see. I told you I had all these questions. That's no, fine. Is in regards to the fight that arises <laughs> between wow. the two. Yeah. Now it turns out to be a ruse. Mm-hmm. In, in a way to distract and like figure out what's happening. Was this – I think we talked about this in the previous episode with the Birds of Prey issue – sort of creating unnecessary conflict and drama. Do you think that this was like a way, of course we're going to have this huge battle, it's JLA Titans, they have to fight. So do you think that, it did it gain more than it lost? I mean, with these people fighting, and they had like actual, almost emotional battles too. I mean, what are your thoughts on on this Uh, fight besides uh, the epic nature of it?
1: Well, yeah, it's totally that trope of like two superheroes team up, but before they team out, team up, they duke it out a little bit in a big and it's all a big misunderstanding type of thing. Um and they've been doing that since like the amazing Spider Man versus Superman crossover from back in the 70s, you know? So uh, there were parts of this that I think were really, really well done because they were they were kind of they're they were kind of all like airing their their dirty laundry with each other in mm-hmm. some cases. And like this tension between wally and kyle or like between Gar- like garth lashing out at, at aquaman as like a, a parent mm-hmm. you know like a, a teenager or like a kid just like being angry at dad sure. and and you know donna like not lashing out at diana them kind of like fighting with each other but donna like kind of pleading with her like you know just like trying to explain to her like this is what's going on and then th- this back and forth between nightwing and batman something that um we haven't seen them on that level since, like, that Batman and the Outsiders, New Ten Titans crossover from all the way back in, like, 83, which was pre-crisis,
5: mm-hmm.
1: where they got into an argument about, like, you know, where Dick was basically like, look, I've been leading this team for years, I know how to be a team leader. And here you have an argument between Nightwing and Batman where if this were back in the, like, lonely place of dying era... Like Batman would well, Batman did literally punch him <laughs> during that era. But Batman, they, they wouldn't have had this conversation; would have gone on, wouldn't have gone on as long as it has. Mm-hmm. So it sees it shows a little bit of the evolution of of their relationship to the point where Dick's on Big, higher footing than he was. Um, I don't know. I guess I, I I just enjoy it because it's just it's a bunch of it's just a bunch of really beautifully drawn fights. Sure. <laughs> where where Batman grabs Betty, and says, "Excuse me," and then turns to Helen and goes, "And you, like." <laughs> Like me, try to tell two teenage girls, like, "Uh, uh, uh not in my room. You go over there. You go over there."
0: Oh my god! <laughs> no,
1: you can't get a bathroom pass because she's going to get a bathroom pass, and I know it's going to happen in the hallway. You're going to fight. Yeah.
0: Oh wow. Well. So <laughs> another question is about Aquaman, though. So I don't know if you're you're going to be able to help me out here. Mm, but I'll in try. issue two, and maybe around page thirteen, everyone has just showed up. And Beast Boy is saying, oh, wow, it's so cool. The Justice League's here just for us. Uh And in the middle of that, who is speaking here? Is it Helena, maybe? Helena or Hunter says, everybody here, Aquaman? And then there's a zoom in on his face, and she says Aquaman again. And there's someone saying, where's my baby? And then someone else is saying, where are we? And then his face is very sullen and depressed. Do you have any idea what is going on with Aquaman here? I think... Is this a previous relationship? No.
1: Um, I think it's one of two factors. Okay. Between the two panels, so you, it's, I, I'm, I'm right on there. There's um, Aquaman kind of looking in the other direction of sure. the board balloon. yep. The focus on his eyes uh-huh. and then all the way to the right is his face. In the middle panel, it's, that's Dialate for Hero, Pantha, Mirage is saying, where's my baby? Fringes behind her. Tempest, or uh, Garth, is standing there kind of coughing up Oh, water. Water or whatever. Yeah. And then there's Rose who's asking, where are we? Now there's two possible explanations for his face. One, he sees Garth, and he realizes that Garth, who was his protege, his sidekick, Aquaman was his mentor, was Garth's mentor. You know, this is Aqualad. This is the kid. So he's seeing that he's in pain. Also, Black Manta killed Aquaman's son. And Mirage standing around going, Where's my baby? Maybe that ha- he had a little bit of a visceral reaction to that.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Because Mira- Mirage left the Titans and she was pregnant. And the last panel, the last pages of that New Titans issue, the last New Titans issue shows that she, her and Tara in the hospital, and Mirage has just given birth to a baby. So she's got a little girl at this point. I don't know how many years in comic time. It's been, what, three years in real time let's say it's been enough time in comic time where she's got a, a a baby and she's taking care of her probably as a single mother and so that idea that like you know so she's distraught over where's her baby and maybe that's triggering something in him
0: okay
1: best argument that i can have so there's no there's no relationship between him and mirage but, okay but, the, but just yeah seeing garth like that and then maybe maybe that also brought up memories
0: okay well thank you for those explanations there
1: i hope that helped i hope i'm accurate on that it's i my knowledge of Aquaman is
0: who knows I mean the only person I know to ask would be Rob Kelly, <laughs> Rob and Kelly. To, like screen capture it and then send it to him yeah I really liked I'm going to go through some of the things that I really like and then okay. and then give you sort of my my overall and then you can absolutely because I know that you want to absolutely gush over this so I, I want to give you that time and then we'll talk about Oracle at the end so things that I really liked is at the end you know I, I've in my opinion, I thought it was a shocker at the end of it. I think it was good writing, and it was almost that Chekhov's gun, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Because Cyborg was mentioned in the beginning, just sort of tangentially with, with Beast Boy. Yeah. And then there are all these little hints, I would say, building up. But really, at the end, I was like, oh my gosh, Cyborg is somehow doing this? So I, I liked that shocker at the end. I thought that, that was really good. Mm -hmm. It was surprising that, of all people, Superman was the first to sort of drop the gauntlet and basically contest that Cyborg wasn't alive anymore (laughs) and was merely a program, which I thought was interesting because, you know, of all people, I thought maybe it'd be Orion since he was the most hostile throughout. But perhaps that was a clue. That was maybe the clue that I should have caught on that this fight was a ruse because Superman probably wouldn't be that bad off. Though sometimes, you know, just like jokes... There's some truth in the jokes, perhaps there was some truth in this as well. I don't know if it's coming from his dealings with brainiac or not, but maybe there was maybe. Some, some truth there.
1: and and Batman could have kept it away like if they have that telepathic link going
0: mm-hmm.
1: and Devin Grayson chooses not to put the word the thought balloons, that explains how like that ruse was possible, yeah, through the telepathic link,
0: yeah, I also like I like Black Canary showing up, talked a little bit about that, but it was nice to just have that little interaction with her in oracle outside of that book to to sort of show what that relationship is outside of birds of prey i like seeing vic interacting with people in issue number three and as he interacts with them even well i guess he's not really interacting he's very passive but he's gaining more of his humanity in appearance at least yeah i thought that that was a really nice touch there that's one of my favorite moments
1: yeah, he goes back from this sort of amorphous computer mass to when he's talking to Roy, which I guess is supposed to be the planet Technus, to Siberian, which is what he looked like at the end of the New Titans issue. And you turn the page, that weird thing where it's like you just see his skin and it's all robot. That's yep. what he looked like when the Russians reassembled him. Oh, I see. And then he's classic cyborg, and then of course he's just Vic Stone. So yeah, I, I like I always I always like that too.
0: Uh, number three, in issue number three, uh, you made a quote, but I didn't want to interrupt you because you, you were getting your flow there. Mm-hmm. I liked how <laughs> Oracle asks if "quote unquote," you know, Gardner has he made an ass of himself <laughs> yet? And I thought, yes, this is why you're my favorite character, and why because he has been BFFs because I absolutely, you know, think the same thing of Guy Gardner, and of course she voices it, which I thought was amazing. I also liked seeing uh, Oracle sending people to different places you you went through that and just showing the panels of small teams going to different locales so yeah. really using i mean it's a huge roster that you have in this book, but really using it I would say to a good extent and of course focusing on the people that really need to be focused on
1: yeah Jimenez is clearly and I give him a lot of credit for this you know the the one of the I remember years ago reading something on a on a comment thread on something and somebody said well jimenez i think i'm george perez he, like that is like referred to use that as like a way to insult the him as an artist and i'm like why would you insult somebody whose inspiration was george perez i know i don't understand that <laughs> i have loved phil jimenez's art since i first saw it back in like 1993 When I was like knee deep in image and like all this like crazy, crazy art, and here comes along this guy who's penciling just like George Perez, who's my favorite comic book artist of all time. So I think that in this whole fight thing where they're sending the small teams out, like I am getting a Crisis on Infinite Earths Mm twelve vibe to it, okay? Where it's like all the disasters and the shadow demons are happening like all over the world, and they just keep cutting to where the different heroes throughout the world are fighting. And he kind of does this in ten with the villain war as well nine and ten with the villain war as well where they're just cutting to different teams of heroes fighting in different parts of the world and just giving kind of snippets of what this hero this hero this hero done and they're Mm -hmm. like crazy obscure characters too like you know um at that time like the global guardians and those things and i feel like that's the feel i was getting from this it was like let's just go global with the stage and you know show all these bits and pieces of them like trying to stop natural disasters and And the sky literally falling and things like that. So, and and I was right. The sky was falling. The panel says, "Move it, people. The sky is falling, and I mean it." And I was like, "Oh, (laughs) what did I?"
0: You're like, you decided to pretend to be chicken a little. I guess so. Yeah. What do you think about the the women trying to figure out what makes Dick Grayson so hot?
2: I Is that actually, a Devin
0: Grayson thing writing herself into the comic?
2: I don't know,
1: but at the same time, like we've had so many comics by this point in 1998 where it's like terribly scantily clad costumes and like, you know, just just all this like I don't know, it's it's you don't think like the like, if if the if if we had to have panel after panel of people ogling corianders for years, you know why not have panels where you know women heroes are kind of checking out Dick's butt, you know, like yeah, or his or his eyes or the chest, like you know they're all kind of comparing him, and then they see that he's talking to, um, then you see it's it's actually kind of a, it's a it's a it's a cute sequence in a way because on the I've got the page in front of me right here, you've got. The three people arguing about it are Flamebird, Argent, and Huntress. Now, Bets always had a crush on him.
0: Yeah. Huntress he had a sexual relationship with.
1: Uh, yep. What about Argent? Fairly, she's a 16-year-old girl. <laughs> you oh, know, she's okay. Just, sure. Yeah. She's too young for you, uh, Richard. Yeah. But then we see a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 like, box panel of, of five different faces, and the last three are Mirage. Huntress and Starfire, who have all had some sort of yeah. relationship, and Mirage kind of broke the two of them up for a little while.
0: Oh, no. The Almost. Starfire and
1: yeah, yeah that okay. was back in the in the late. It, that was um, when Mirage kidnapped Starfire and then disguised herself as Starfire okay. just so that she could have sex with Nightwing repeatedly.
0: Repeatedly,
1: yeah, it was basically like she pretended to be Starfire because in. The alternate, this this is where, this is why I said this is a deep dive into Titans history, where I think if you don't know the Titans, you, you can probably just enjoy this on a story level, you know, on some level where it's just like cute little moments and things. But if you really know the Titans, you see that look, you know, back and forth in them looking at like Corey and Dick. And it's like, you know that, okay, so Mirage and the team Titans come from an alternate future from Armageddon 2001. And in that alternate future, she was, she was Dick Grayson's girlfriend on the team and so for whatever reason when the kids came to earth in the present to kill donna troy et cetera, et cetera, she kidnapped and held Corey against her will and um pretended to be Corey, and it was supposed to be to infiltrate the group you know that was the main purpose of her pretending to be Corey.
5: Mm.
1: you know it's so, a you know so that she could as a spy mm-hmm. but of course you know, if she could dress up to be Corey and, you know, Dick's trying to, you know, she's got this guy that she was supposedly in love with back in the future. And, well, you know, these things happen.
0: I'm going to ask a serious question. Okay. Do you, Would you consider that rape? No. Okay. But he doesn't know that it's not Corey.
1: It, he, it's fraud. Okay. I was thinking about this because I've heard it said that she raped him. I don't know where but
0: know, <laughs> probably said, on this show, maybe, actually. But, okay. But yeah.
1: so I listened to, okay. So I've listened to a few true crime podcasts here and there and, you know, read stuff like that. I'm not a aficionado, but I've read enough to know the con artist who comes in and pretends to be a doctor or he pretends to be a millionaire or something to sweep some unsuspecting woman off her feet and swindle her out of her inheritance or something that sort of fraud where like, she falls in love with him, and basically, he's conning her to take like that—that that sort of long con to take her of all her money, or vice versa. Where she's like, you know, you know, there, there's an, there's a means to an end there, and that's what I see in that in that whole Mirage Nightwing Starfire storyline. Okay, she was, it's, it's, it's illegal, it's fraud, and she's certainly conning him. But everything about the sexual relationship between the two of them is consensual. Mm she's just she's just completely i don't know if she's gaslighting i don't know if gaslighting oh is, my the right, is, is the
0: right gosh.
1: i don't know if that's the right term, but she's misleading him she's committing serious fraud there okay. but it's not it's not uh rape okay but then we have a reunion between Nightwing and starfire, and it does have to be pointed out this is the first time these two characters have been interacted with one another in this series since about like nineteen ninety three, I think mm, like wow. before zero hour. Yeah. So, I did, yeah,
0: I liked that scene where he asked, you know, can we continue a relationship as friends? You know? Yeah. And thousands.
1: Donna and Donna's crying because <laughs> Donna's the sister.
0: Oh yeah. And she was at his wedding. Remember?
1: Mm hmm. Uh, he was at hers. He gave her, he gave her away.
0: Oh, I actually so. met she was at his wedding. I, did I say he was at her wedding?
1: Who dick? No, I say he was at hers.
0: Yeah. Too. And I said, she was at his. Yeah. The fake wedding with that uh, femme fatale. Uh, um, No, no,
1: no. That was actually Starfire.
0: No, we're talking about two different things. Nightwing annual number one, where he has to marry that woman for an investigation. (laughs) Oh, okay. Remember? And Donna gets uh, invited. Uh, Oh, But he didn't really want Donna there, didn't want um, Babs or either.
1: Yes, yes. Okay, I was thinking about... Other issues
0: the other well yeah, the other time that Titans have gotten married <laughs> oh man, yes, so yeah, wrapping up my my positivity here, I liked that a lot of I would say a big theme of this was family mm-hmm and to a certain extent I think legacy as well, uh, especially when you get into legacy characters yes. and also connections with the young heroes with the heroes that they're modeled after mm-hmm. So I would say all of that is really positive. But overall, I I didn't really enjoy the story. And the first issue was hard for me to get through because for me, I felt like it was a lot of the same things happening over and over again. Mainly with stealing the Teen Titans, which, you know, I guess repetition works out there. And really only the end of the issue mattered. And it just seemed like there was so much going on, so much compacted so many characters that I had no emotional connection with that it was just, it was difficult. Now the knockout-dragout battle, I, I figured, oh no, it's happening. Of course it's happening. And then I was a little disappointed that it was like, we had to do this because we needed to distract them. But it was nice at the end because everyone came together and Cyborg was, you know, sort of resurrected and, and brought back from love. But... I would like to say that even though I didn't enjoy it, I feel like I wasn't the intended audience. And I think that had I your history, or if I knew more about the Teen Titans, that I would have gotten more out of it. So I think it's more my, just my place in sort of <laughs> the, the comics realm. That if I were, you know, another person or had more experience in that, I totally would get more out of it. So that's my only... I knew that once this happened, I thought, oh, no, Tom's going to be upset. But that's, you know, that's just how I feel about it. So now I would love to give you your time to, to say why you love it so and probably why you're with the majority of people. I'm with the minority of, you know, why this is a, a great tale.
1: But here's the thing. I don't think it's a great tale. Oh. I think it's a great piece of nostalgia, and okay. I think it's great fan service, but from a story point, it's really hard to engage if you don't know the Titans. So, I, I and I, I don't know why you would think I would be upset about a story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I thought Look. our friendship was over.
1: No, why would I do that? I don't, <laughs> I don't get that. Um... <laughs> Uh, oh. so because yeah. some people um,
0: take things seriously
1: it's a comic book, okay, anyway, um no, it's not a it's look i I don't I have a complicated relationship with devin Grayson's writing because there's stuff that I've read in her in the past that I thought she was very good at, and there was stuff that I've read in the past that I just would not want to read again and and I say this just and i and I hate to say it and I'm not trying to sound sexist because she's a woman it's just her writing I you know I feel the way about that way about um, there's a number of Marvel Wolfman Titans issues that like I own because I completed the run you know? <laughs> so uh, it, it's not it's not that it's just that and and she had a she had a handle on a number of the characters and I think that this this series holds up as well as it does because of the art over the writing because I made like because there's no like she has to create a conflict in the middle of because there's no antagonist in this entire story
3: Sure.
1: you you have <laughs> you have you know like I said they're 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 not really fighting cyborg cyborg's confused and they're trying to get him back because he has been lost etc cetera, etc cetera. so there, there's something like really cool about that but at the same time if you don't have any connection to the characters you're you're not gonna understand. Why is that so important? Why is Victor Stone so important? And I don't, I think beyond the people who are fans of the Titans and who want to see the Titans in as close as possible as to what they remember from the classic Titans or the classic New Teen Titans, the casual reader's not going to care. So I don't think she does a very good job at really making this like, you know, if this is your first Titans story. Making you like kind of clearing things up. I, the file cards are are in there, and but it's really, really continuity heavy, and it's really reliant on people who are established readers within the day, DC universe of the day. But the artwork is gorgeous.
0: Yes, so I will theater, flip yeah. through this
1: endlessly just to look at the artwork,
0: yeah. and, and some of this
1: yeah. and some of the moments, some of the scenes are. Very well written. I'm not saying this is not a well written story in all of its parts. There are some really nice, well written moments mm-hmm. in this in this series. But, and I thought the fight as a fight goes, I thought it was actually a really well choreographed fight. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It's like they just needed to throw some sort of fight in here because <laughs> it's, it's, it wouldn't make much sense. There's no big bad that they're all fighting against. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's where I think that's where it does it kind of trips. And I haven't read her Titan series since it came out so that's almost 20 years ago so i'd have to go back and reread it to see if i remember anything good about it but it it did not it it was i remember a lot of people were very unfulfilled by it okay yeah. you're not wrong but like i said i'm way more about the art in these three books than i am about the about the story, about the
0: other stuff, yeah, and I mean, what there, a playground to play in. With yeah, although characters.
1: there are some, there are some moments like you know, because like I remember looking through this book when I first came out. I'm like, oh my god, they brought that person back and that person back and that person back. So it was a sort of like it was total fan service, mm-hmm. and it was this sort of like you know checklist of. I'm looking, I just I was slipping through it, and I'm looking at that page where um, Dick interrupts Corey's VR world fantasy thing to get her out of there. That scene with him and Donna. Is like that's hard. It's so hard. Yeah, and I think she writes that really, really well.
0: Absolutely, especially that Donna knows. Yeah, and she's that's what. Like, yeah,
1: it's like so. It's just it's a
0: painful scene. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree with you that the, the character interactions are on point. Yeah. They're they're filled with emotion. I think it's just the story itself yeah, that's it's, lacking.
1: It's a lot of it's a lot of weird inner conflict for a superhero story. Yeah. An your, extreme your extern- Orion, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: huh.
1: Orion's almost like comic relief through this. Whole I guess story. so.
0: Yeah. You'd so, expect it to be Plastic Man, but he's pretty tame.
1: Except, I do like the scene where Impulse is chasing him around the bar. <laughs> do the pretzel, do the thing. Yeah. Oh my so goodness. it's got yeah. it, it's got its moments, but yeah. it is, and it's not a. It's not a terrible story. I mean, there are some oh, terrible no. Titan stories, Absolutely but it's not. it's no. not. But yeah, so you're not you're not you know the, it's not a secret cow.
0: Okay. I wasn't sure. I was afraid I was no, going to offend you. No, I did oh, no, appreciate why, I the info cards, though. I, I did say, I think, yeah, so I'm cool. going to contradict myself a little bit because at times, you know, when it's a full-page spread and there are, f- like, five cards at the bottom, it is slightly, you know, overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, for someone who's not well-versed in the Titans, it's giving you an idea of who these people are. Yeah. Which is nice. So Part of know.
1: you want... Part of me wants this to be like a, an oversized book. It kind of
0: needs know, to be. They,
1: they wouldn't have done like a treasury edition of this because they weren't making this back in 1998. But could you imagine this in like that old school treasury big, comics? Yeah. I, wouldn't that be, be cool? Great. Yeah. yeah.
0: Blow it up. I did accidentally find an issue, too, that, who is it? It's Dove. Dove is flying around in Woodstock, New York, apparently. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's later. I see page 30, but that's probably wrong. And uh, Hawk is with him. And uh, he says, what are those? So it existed in 1998. We all thought that that kid had it cornered in whatever year, 2015. But no, Mm -hmm. it existed before that. So I just wanted to bring that up. Well, my final question before uh, we give a rating on this is in regards to Oracle. And I like to ask, my big question is just, do you think this story would work without Oracle being in it?
1: I think that the problem is that she gave something for her, her something to do And that she is coordinating things, but I wish that she would have just given her a little bit more to do, because I feel like you could swap Oracle out for something else. Yeah. Like, put somebody on Watchtower duty, and that's Oracle in this story. So, um, because she, I mean, she did do the kind of, but then again, I don't know if Devin had really written Oracle at this point. So I don't know if if she really had a handle on.
0: Yeah, how to um, use her.
1: Yeah, how to yeah. use her. And that, that's the issue that... I think that was the problem I was saying about Grant Morris in the last episode. Where, like, they had... I can't remember if I was saying this in my head or on the episode. Where, like, they had her join the team. And then she's in... She's not in several issues. And then in several issues, she's in, like, a panel. Yeah. And it's like, why is she on the team? Yeah. And I know that, like I said, there's later on, she has a role in a storyline that's important. So mm-hmm. it's there. But it's just, like, it is after a while. You're kind of, like... You know, I don't think she's underused here, but I think it could have been there could have been more back and forth. There could have been interaction with Nightwing. I can't remember what term she was with Nightwing yeah. at this point. You know, or with with Tim.
0: There's some flirtations.
1: Yeah, the two of them have connected. Sure. Yeah. In in a sense, like they're they're part of you know he's fully integrated into the Batman yeah. world at this point. So it's, it's, there could have been more.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's almost like two different worlds, I, with for Dick yeah. anyways, because he's got his Teen Titans world. I guess you had to sort of pick and choose which yeah. one he interacts with, because you've got that, and then the Batman world. Yeah. And then Oracle's sort of on the, I don't know, on the ring around there, so I don't, there's a lot going on. Yeah. I think something that I'm truly really trying to work through, and I hope that it gets worked out as we continue our JLA coverage, is what purpose she serves if Jean Jones is there. Because what I mm. continue to find is that John Jones has this telepathic link. And so if you have a telepathic link, why do you need a like someone in your ear as well? Yeah. If you've got someone in your head. And I understand she's also relaying commands to people who aren't there at the time. And she's getting information as well, but... That's what I want to work out. This one, I think you probably could have done without her. I mean, she literally does say, oh, my God. I should have counted it, actually. But she said, oh, my God, a lot of times, and it doesn't seem like she has too much. Like, what parts of the mission is she able to really help? Well, she is the one who figures out that Orion messing up, attacking is messing up or causing sort of seismic activity on earth so she's able to help in that way and she's the one coordinating the different smaller teams going different places so that works out but otherwise i'm not really sure because again you've got the telepathic link that's connecting the gla together
1: had they had they been able to do this as a as a mini series that was beyond three issues let's say six you could have started it with that core group of titans and had like all of the other titans be abducted kind of co- like you could have gotten that whole abduction thing quietly in the background as things go and build there but you could have also maybe established nightwing and oracle since uh, i think between the two teams he's the only one aside from batman who knows who she is yeah i'm gonna assume that he knows that she's oracle yes at this point okay yeah because they've so- out so you you have the two of them so like you could create a conflict where like she is struggling as well because she has an allegiance to her friend but she's also part of this team and that she could be because she doesn't put up with Batman's crap as much as everybody else does <laughs> maybe she's doing double duty maybe okay. she's running intelligence for for Nightwing and the Titans in addition to batman and you probably could have done that within this three issue series but if you had an expand a slightly expanded story with is not as much like huge set pieces all the time maybe that would have worked but it would have been interesting to see like her relationship with nightwing as it was at the point causing friction because of the fact that like here come all of his old friends and all these other people and i thought i was supposed to be kind of an important like we're supposed to be friends and teammates and you know whatever sure And, you know, I want to help you, but now I'm being pulled in the other direction by, you know, your dad. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like, what's my obligation? It would have been interesting to see that.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, unless you have anything else, what grade would you give this Teen Titans and Justice League story?
1: I give the art a 10, both for Phil Jimenez and Mark Buckingham. Um, I like both of those styles.
0: Wasn't Mark Buckingham a member of um, Fleetwood Mac?
1: That's Lindsay Buckingham. Oh, okay. So 10, the story itself, probably around a six.
0: Okay.
1: Um. So that averages out to about an eight.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, well. I,
1: it's about, a, It's. I give the story, basically I give the story a B. A B, I, the, yeah. The, it's a B. Yeah. Overall.
0: Yeah. I'm. I'm just counting on the story, I think. I think I would give it a six, just low, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately for me. But I do see the merit in it absolutely, and I also again say that it's not—I'm not the intended audience. I, I don't think mm-hmm. I am. So uh, you know, it's also unfair for me to potentially grade it. But
1: but no, I think it's perfectly fair to you, for you to grade it because you would have been a comics consumer in 1998, 1999, buying this. Mm. And you would have read this and been like, This is not for me and put it down and therefore shown a fault in the series. Mm -hmm. The purpose of the storyteller is to tell the story. The purpose of the company is to publish is to sell the book. And if you're not selling the book to if you're trying to get a Titan series going again and pick up an audience that has kind of been adrift for the better part of a decade, you want that audience, but you want a larger audience. And if they're failing to capture that larger audience then they're not doing their jobs correctly. Mm-hmm. So don't discount your opinion because you're not like you don't have Titans cred.
0: Okay. You know what Titans run I really actually like? Mm. Jeff Johns. It's all right. I know right. you have mixed feelings about it.
1: I have mixed feelings about it because of, of various things, but I think it was what the Titans needed at the time. Mm. So I have I have beef with Jeff Johns and the way he treated the 90s Titans in Infinite Crisis. Oh. But we're not going to get into that.
0: Yeah. That's another podcast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, uh, we do have some listener feedback, which is good because Tom's on here and some of them are addressing Tom. Maybe all of them. Maybe. Okay. Here we go. First from Ian Prime, aka Ian Miller, regarding episode 155. He says, to clarify for Tom, yes, Steph of the early Dixon years was a lot angrier. But once she started dating Tim, she became a lot happier and more cheerful. (laughs) It only takes a man to do that. By the time she was back, she's deliberately cultivated an attitude of hopefulness. Quote, "A, a utility belt full of crap. And a positive outlook, end quote, as she puts it. And yes, the quote was from Steph's interior monologue, so that explains the made-up words and overly flowery description. At least I think it does. Winky emoticon. I think, remember when we talked about that weird getting a hug from Superman is like a Sunray? Yes. And I said, it's probably from Steph. And so he said it was. I think Birds of Prey is ending because sales don't justify continuing past the two-year Rebirth commitment that DC seems to have made with almost every one of their launch titles, a couple exceptions. I feel Tom in the Wonder Woman comic losing me. Mm-hmm. Did you say you were confused by it?
1: No, I said I was just... Um,
0: oh, that's right. You're giving up several, Rebirth.
1: I, I'm giving it up right. um, at, at, at issue 50 yep. because I, was, I, really, I still haven't read the last few issues. They're just sitting on my yeah. table. Eventually, I'll read the
0: it's a lot of her interaction with her brother and Dark Side. Yeah, also. it's
1: just, it wasn't like, they're not terrible stories. They're no. just not.
0: It doesn't have that, that power that the initial stuff did. Yeah, it's just,
1: uh, yeah, I was just kind of like, yeah. mm. so I was, I, was get, I was getting bored, I think yeah. is the best way to put it.
0: He finishes by saying, I'm glad Stella enjoyed Barbara's appearance in tech. I thought it was like hearing the voice of Oracle from the past, strong and brilliant. Then we have from Ange, the uh, lover of Dana and coffee, blah. Listened to the latest show and was thrilled to hear the Grant Morrison JLA issues covered. I'm a big fan of Morrison and his run on JLA was just about perfect, mixing some of his wilder ideas in the setting of a standard hero team as opposed to Doom Patrol. Batman's relationship with Huntress is strained throughout the run as he invites her and then fires her for nearly crossing the line oh great can't wait for that I loved Oracle here as it felt like Babs had finally hit the big time it is one thing to coordinate the efforts of a street level team like the birds it's another to run point for the big guns as they fight killer gods and yes the JLU promo is appropriate but I'd say because General Eileen putting his mind in the shaggy man and then shaving down appears both in Morrison's JLA and the JLU cartoon, and then he gave some images. I forgot that they did that in the JLU, so I, yeah. until he put that little screen cap, and I'm like, oh yeah, they did that. Oh man, and you know what I just remembered? The first time we podcasted together, no, that's a lie. The first time we podcasted in person together was the Janus, wasn't it? I Didn't don't we think do? we did the did.
1: Jan- okay. We did, we did the one oh what the heck was it called <laughs> it,
0: it wasn't, wasn't the like, Janus director it was team that they were going it was like the JLA no it was, it was the Ledger Ledger didn't yes Le- that was it. it yeah 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 and remember yeah. Morrison was in there as the writer the writer and he had writer's block so it yes. all goes back to Morrison maybe maybe Michael Bailey's been wrong all the time uh, and finally, from Josue, as I call him, or Joshua Lappin Bertone, he says, Hello, Stella, and whomever the guest of the month may be, and he thinks it's Shaq. He's wrong, I guess. Just got done <laughs> listening to your episode with Tom. I had the Secret Files issue when it first came out. I used to love getting Secret Files when I was younger. They were good ways to sample characters and franchises I wasn't familiar with. Great jumping on points for new readers. I loved Oracle joining the JLA. Back then, it meant something to be a JLA member. Nowadays, I think even Harley Quinn is going to join. <laughs> Ugh. Regarding Babs's Congress age, Barbara Randall did do a retcon post crisis, which stated that a special provision allowed Barbara to join Congress before the age of 25. Pre crisis, they just said she was 25. I think her being a former member of the government is a cool bit of backstory that I wish stayed. Yeah, me too. As well as her PhD. Tom's literature recommendation was like a roller coaster ride for me. He mentioned the book *Beloved*, which betrayed me in 12th grade. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Due to some miscommunications too long to get into here, the (laughs) book... This is insane. This is like my story about running around the school. The book almost prevented me from graduation. So the book, the, the Ghost of Beloved, like basically prevented his walking needless to say i wasn't a fan at the time and tom's mention brought back the memories oh great tom you made him have daymares it would be interesting to revisit reading the book for leisure though and not as part of a last minute class assignment slugfest made me smile though i read it a few months ago and had a blast listen to tom's words and read it yes i have it i have it on my shelf hopefully during spring break I also thought I would use this email to update BTO listeners on the saga of Don's Dino Romance. Oh, for those interested, I took some of the kids from work to Universal Studios last week for their spring break. We rode the Jurassic Park ride, and I was looking forward to seeing... (laughs) I was looking forward to seeing the father of Donovan's baby. What? (laughs) I can hardly do this. Okay. When we got to the part with... Dilophosaurus. We call him Dill. That's his name. His eyes met mine. He had excitement in them. He knew that if I was there, then Don wasn't far behind. He scanned the rest of the ride for Don, and when he didn't see him, his eyes turned from joy to rage. He wasn't happy. He spit his Diloph venom in anger. <laughs> I made sure to keep my mouth closed so we wouldn't have two dino pregnancies. My heart breaks to see him hurting so much. Our friend Ben, thanks for the spoiler, will be visiting Florida in a few weeks and will be making a trip to Universal. I think the two of us will find a way to leave a note for the dinosaur not to give up hope. I'm not sure what the best way to do that is. Maybe BTO listeners can come up with something. Fly on, Babs lovers. That's hard because I think you get in trouble for throwing things off the side of rides. Um, I don't know. It'd be interesting, potentially... uh, Are you still there, Tom?
1: Yeah, sorry, my microphone. No, that's was muted. okay.
0: That's okay. Your hand was, your head was probably in your hands. I think it'd be interesting to like FaceTime with Dawn at the moment that the Dilophosaurus is there, and so like they could potentially have. Like a digital interaction, but I don't know because you don't want your phone to get wet either. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. So uh, listeners, if you have any thoughts on how Don can reconnect with Dill from uh, Universal Studios, please write in and let us know. And I will say about Beloved, I feel like I uh, Tom for some reason has trolled us. I guess both Josh and myself because. A student walked in and is carrying Beloved, and I'm like, "Oh no, that book!" And then she left it in my r- classroom, and so there it was. And so she came and visited me the next day, and I said, "Get that out of there." Not that I don't like it; I recognize that. Well, actually, it, she asked me if I didn't like it, and I, I, it's a hard read. It's it just emotionally, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. I recognize hmm. it for you know, the product that it is, but it's just maybe not something that I'd like to read again, but I'm sure that uh, Tom will make me read it again for required reading. <sighs> well, that's Not it. any time
1: in the future. So <clears throat> oh,
0: okay. That's good. that I can heal up after 1984. If you uh, have any questions or comments uh, for BTO or Tom, uh, you can email backworldoracle at com, and then Tom is affidavit right, at com. Yep. Uh, so I guess the questions to leave you with would be, Was Dick Grayson raped by Mirage? What are your thoughts on that? Or was it fraud, as Tom said? And if you have any thoughts about sort of this idea of authenticity in writing that I I guess I'll sort of make a sweeping generalization call it that and, and what your thoughts are on that particular discussion. Someone on Twitter also responded to our question from last time in regards to Zinda Blackhawk, Lady Blackhawk, woo! Because remember, we were like, what's she talking about here? I don't mm-hmm. remember who it was that responded to me. I tried to actually just find it now and I couldn't. But they made a comment that she heard big dates. She just likes to go out and like beat people up. Just find like a villain to beat up. So mm-hmm. potentially when she said like a cool customer, maybe she's going to go look for a freeze and beat him up. That's her idea of a hot date. So All there right. we go. Okay, well, we're going to take a break. Uh, unlike last time, Tom didn't make me angry or upset with his uh, Corey talk. So he can stay on. Uh, when we come back, we're going to review background the Birds of Prey number twenty. And Batgirl number seventy-three, aka Batgirl number twenty-one. But first, Zyce's radio hour featuring probably something that Tom danced to in his eighth-grade dance: "On Parole" by Motorhead.
3: That you won't get out forever like a day. I didn't know what was going on, but I was doing a little bit of fun. But no fun is That's what I'm told that you got. Sense that you was broke. I'm trying to tell her I was sick. They seem to think you was a part of the trip. Well, alright, I'm going to go. If they don't listen to me like they should, I wouldn't have this. I'm going to Looking for reserves in the race just my money I'm racing.
0: Well, here we are. Welcome back. And, you know, I was thinking about this since we only took, you know, a five-minute break or so, that don't you think, as a non-sequitur, absolutely, don't you think people would have been upset? It, well, maybe not upset. It, maybe upset's the wrong word. But had a white director or a white writer done Black Panther, don't you think the feel and the vibe of that film would have been different? And don't you think people maybe would have felt a little bit different about it?
1: yeah. I think I, I I think so, and and I and I would have completely understood any outrage that people would have toward the selection of a black director or black writer or black I mean not sorry a white writer or right. a white director or or both um, had the movie had that been the case, mm-hmm. especially since like there are so many black writers and directors out there who. To choose from, like you know, I mean, I know that, um, it, it, you know, like just you don't you don't have to limit yourself to just kind of a short list of people. Sure. And uh, I think they did. A, I think I think they they knew exactly what they had when they when they chose. Uh, yeah. When they, so they chose, but yeah, I think you're right now. But at the same time, but I also feel the same way about like Wonder Woman and Patty Jenkins, where I think she did i mean she was like perfect for it she was outstanding oh yeah
0: so. so i mean i think color in that sense wouldn't have mattered but i think sex definitely mm-hmm. impacted the film yes so maybe it's something about i don't know maybe it's easier to do with comics but maybe maybe there's just a better feel with With movies, and then I just read *The Hate You Give*, and that was written by a black black woman, and Mm -hmm. it's you know it's in the black community. And I think there's no way a white writer would have been able to write that. And you have to read it in order to understand why I'm saying that. But I think there are just certain times that it has to be that like the focus audience or the the target, I guess, author. I don't know. (laughs) It it just has to line up in that demographic. So I don't know. I no, guess you can I, still argue either way, but I think there are some things that have to be. It has to fall into the mold.
1: I think, especially when you're like when you're dealing with a subject matter that is, if if that subject matter is really like part of the culture of the community, that like that a white director might not. They might they might direct the film. Or write the film in a way that is competent,
3: sure.
1: But they just might not fully get it. Yeah. Now, if it's if it's like a buddy cop comedy or a movie like a Lethal Weapon type of thing, and it's two and and it's a mostly person of color cast, and you have um, Richard Donner directing it, <laughs> well, Richard Donner directed Lethal Weapon, so you oh, have okay. Richard Donner directing it, or, or somebody who's like who's white directing it. I think. That is that's where you don't necessarily need to make that argument because you're you're working on a very very formulaic sort of thing and you know Mm -hmm. where where you are simply you're just casting a wide net when you're casting the movie. Mm
5: -hmm.
1: In the case of Black Panther, which is so ingrained in you know Wakanda, which is part of Africa, which is there's there's so much. You know, I mean, just the movie, and, and this is me as a white person saying this, and I'm saying this as a compliment, like the movie is unapologetically black, and I think that really, really just makes it so great. Right. It's the two movies that I actually, actually do think come to mind where a white director directed a movie of a work of literature that is very much of the, of the black experience, our beloved, oh. which was directed by Jonathan Demi. Whose most famous film is um The Silence of the Lambs. Mm. Um, and that was the one that Oprah produced and starred in, and I've never seen it. I've actually never seen the other one I'm gonna bring up. Um <laughs> but I, I got mixed roses. The other one is the color purple,
0: oh. which
1: is directed by Steven Spielberg. Okay. And you know, you I've never seen that either. I've read the book, mm-hmm. but I've never seen the movie, and I know that there's I know that he took a certain amount of criticism where there was... I, I'm trying to remember. It's been a very, very long time, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that there was some controversy, minor as it may be, mm-hmm. over the fact that that at that time he had directed... He had not directed a serious drama yet.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Because um, that was 85? It was like 85 or 86, and he was just coming off of um, Temple of Doom. Oh, gosh. And Yeah, so he had done... He had done uh, since from between eighty one and eighty four. He did Star Wars, uh, not Star Wars. Sorry, that's Lucas. Raiders, E.T. He had a hand in Poltergeist. Um, he did Temple of Doom. Prior to that, he had done Close Encounters and Jaws, and he'd done a couple of movies. But he'd not done like a serious period drama that the color of purple is. And then he would go on to do Empire of the Sun, and but I mean, would <laughs> like. He would go on to direct Schindler's List, mm-hmm. and if you had a, you know, if you had a, uh, if Mel Gibson directs Schindler's List, I mean, are we we're having the same discussion, you know? Sure. And I'm using Mel Gibson on purpose because the guy's a an anti-Semitic pig. But you know, I mean, it's just the sort of like, you know. So I, I, I in in a long-winded way, I mm-hmm. completely agree with you that. Yeah. Black Panther, I mean, I'm sure it would have been com- a competent, like competent, I think is the best oh, way sure. to put it. I'm sure it would have been a a, a kind of a workman-like movie. Mm-hmm. But, and I'm behind on my Marvel movie watching. Like, I've missed a few. I will go see Infinity War when it comes out. Um, maybe not opening weekend, but at least within the first weekend or two. But there are some of those movies that feel have started – to feel a little formulaic
5: mm-hmm.
1: or like I don't know just they don't like I like them in the theater but they don't they're not grabbing me and this like grabbed me and I think that it was it was the aesthetic of the director and the fact that the studio didn't seem to make him need to fit it into a certain
0: sure.
1: template yeah. um, that, that made it work
0: mm-hmm. so yeah well, I guess we'll say, remember, uh, please definitely share your thoughts about this. This is all stemming from <laughs> one comment um and then mm. and then Ian's concern, so I think there's certainly I don't know, I think the comics might be up for debate, but it seems like the movies maybe there's a little more less of a debate for that, but anyways. maybe
1: maybe yeah? that's because of the lack of frequency of the movies compared to the comics,
0: okay,
1: because the comics coming out on a monthly basis, and sure. if you've got. If you've got um, Batgirl, let's take Batgirl, for instance, since this is the topic of your podcast, sure. um, that is being published, even though they keep restarting the numbering of the series, they've been publishing Batgirl continuously for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. And you've had quite a number of women writers, but you've also had, at least on Birds, you've had male writers as sure. well. Yep. So I think there's more leeway there because like... We could go twelve issues down the line, and the 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 Hope Larson run ends, or the Benson sisters r- end their run, or whatever, and they bring in Jeff Lemire, or Brian K. Vaughan or Brian Wood, <laughs> or, or 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 they bring back Chuck Dixon, or mm-hmm. Marv Wolfman, or or Tomasi or somebody they bring in a male mm-hmm. a man to write the book for whatever the run that they're going to be on and I think that I think because if the series keeps going after that and then another team of women or a woman takes it over again mm-hmm. it's I don't think it's as egregious because it's just in continuous publication and it's a monthly thing as opposed sure. to here's this one Black Panther movie and let's see how it does mm-hmm. And if it doesn't do well, we might not get another shot. So you know, so it's. I think the stakes are higher when you're talking about a feature film.
0: Sure.
1: Which, as of our recording, this
0: is like number two, isn't it?
1: It's like, it's like number two or no, it's it's three,
0: isn't it? After Avatar.
1: It's three. It's yeah. It's third all time. Avatar is number two.
0: Okay.
1: Because the Force Awakens is number one. Oh, okay, yeah. So, but it just passed Titanic, like
0: yeah. And uh, I think so that makes the director the highest-grossing black director ever, mm-hmm. which is great for him. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, well, again, yeah, leave leave your feedback or thoughts on this. Uh, And uh, well, I guess now we'll get to it. We had that discussion both in part one and part two. So here we go. Uh, We're going to start with Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, number 20. This is full circle, part two, guilt-stricken. Writers Julie and Shauna Benson, artist Rohe Antonio, and colorist Marcelo Maiolo. Huntress updates readers on the previous issue while adding her own perspective as to her feelings on the state of the Birds of Prey team. Basically, Batgirl has not been forgiven and Huntress wonders if the team is even going to survive. Helena continues to reflect on her life and how far she's come and wonders whether her mother could also change. At her door, she is suddenly attacked by someone delivering a court summons. I'm sure that's how we would all feel if we got a subpoena. The next day at Gotham City Courthouse, Helena takes a stand as a character witness to help the judge decide whether her mother has sufficiently paid for her crimes she was sentenced up to six years but is only paid a year and some change so if this sounds a little weird to you it's supposed to helena thinks back to the beginning and while her mother didn't commit all the crimes that she accused of because helena certainly helped in the violence category we're we're looking back all the way to the first arc she can't implicate herself without of course damaging the birds so she's in A bit of a tough situation. When asked if her mother deserves to be released back into society, Helena says she still has some healing to do. The judge agrees and denies parole while transferring her to Arkham Asylum. And again, readers, if you think that something feels wrong about this, that's good. uh, Because Helena also thinks that and it's true later at gus's funeral burn rate yes that thing is still alive spies on the morning and a spat slash blaming session between the birds occurs and burn rate is also watching that after airing some hurt feel- feelings the birds agree to trust one another and no more secrets moving forward Huntress will follow that right after she visits Judge Watson's home to see if he got paid off for getting her mother transferred. And no, she doesn't tell the birds of prey what she's doing. Once there, Huntress is suddenly attacked by burn rate, and she's able to deal... A heavy enough blow to get away, but for whatever reason, the very strange sort of uh, segue between pages, Burnrate ends up shuffling off very quickly to Arkham Asylum, where she helps Calculator release Blackbird, yes, that Blackbird, and Fenice. Huntress goes to the clock tower, where she explains what happens. Of course, the birds are upset that, you know, she didn't tell them anything. The birds watch Calculator and his new team exit the asylum, which, again, is slightly. Hypocritical, since looping into the security cams at the asylum has to be illegal. But I guess they're okay with that. So next issue, we have the birds are prey.
1: (laughs) I see what you did there.
0: I know. Well, not me, the Benson. I know. I know. (laughs) But I'll take the credit. Well, uh, last episode we started talking about uh, favorite art panels. Do you or pages? Do you have a particular favorite art? panel in this issue tom
1: i'm scrolling through i don't on on my digital copy
0: sure
1: it's pages 17 and 18 which is the motorcycle chase yes. which on the digital copy um i have to read the pages one at a time so it's kind of i'm reading them split up but clearly they're meant to be read as one double page spread Mm -hmm. and um i and and i can picture it just flipping back and forth and I think it's a really really well done Mm -hmm. uh, double page spread it kind of it reminds me of like sometimes what I like about print comics more than digital comics and um, while it's not as um, ornate as J.H. Williams the third's Batwoman ones it it kind of reminds me a little bit of that and that's one of the things I loved about that Batwoman title was Mm -hmm. how just those ornate double page spreads and and that stuff so and i and i like the action in this it's not just the layout i like the panel from panel to panel the action yep that over the course of a few things this chase is a really really well composed chase scene so um that's that's my favorite couple of pages there
0: my favorite is a, a panel that's a couple pages before actually i guess two pages before that where you actually see burn rate emerging from the the flames and the fire and uh, i just think it looks so menacing and also really cool almost gives you like a terminator vibe and mm. you feel like you're going to hear do 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 do
1: do yeah <laughs> that is out. a good panel yeah, yeah
0: i really like that one so that would yeah. be my favorite
1: um, this is the second to last issue of the series
0: I believe is it twenty two? Twenty
1: two is the twenty the last issue. Okay, I, I couldn't so. remember if it was twenty one or twenty two that correct. they were going to end with. Okay, yeah. All right, I was just just wondering.
0: I did this weird praying mantis guy at the beginning. What did you think about the- <laughs> this? <laughs> This little off villain and it's just, uh, it's almost one of those James Bond sequences where there's a little mission at the beginning and then you've got the rest of the film because you've got Mm Batgirl doing her own thing while the other birds are upset at her. Do you have any thoughts on this? Do you know who this is? Is it just a throwaway villain?
1: (laughs) I have no idea who that is. Um, (sighs) It's a a, I like the little sort of little adventure before the main adventure thing. Especially since like we're getting a Huntress issue and we had a Batgirl issue, yes, last in the issue. Are, one, yeah. are we like cycling Through all the birds at this point Like will we get I a wonder. Black Canary one mm. Next issue and then for the Final issue get like all of them or something mm-hmm. Um I don't know if that's The If that's the the intent or whatever Um but yeah I don't know who that Um don't know who that is. If I'm being completely, fam- completely honest with you, but it's okay. a very odd looking, odd looking villain.
0: There's apparently a praying mantis man, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's what the DC database tells me. But maybe someone will know, or maybe it's just an off villain that mm-hmm. we don't really need to worry about. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the fact that this was Huntress uh, focused now. Did you read the beginning of this series by any chance? I can't remember if you were on at all during like the first arc. I
1: don't think so. Let okay. me check. Um, no, the first issue that I have of Batgirl: and The Birds of Prey is issue twelve. Okay. So I had twelve and thirteen.
0: <laughs> Poor guy.
1: Um, <laughs> but I do not have. Uh, but I do not have anything from the beginning of of it.
0: Okay, so my, my point in asking you this is when the birds were forming, it was very much, uh, I would say, a Huntress-centric story to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. It, it got its The title was, you know, Who is Oracle? Because there was this oracle that was running around that obviously wasn't Barbara Gordon. So you'd think that it was a Barbara Gordon story, but it was very much focused on Helena trying to uh, figure out who this Phineas was and figure out the murder of her family. And here we're having that again it seems like with finis popping up again and very centric issue do you think it's appropriate that we have now that the series is ended ending that we have this uh focus issue if we don't have a dyna focus issue like what if we finish out the series and we've been focusing on huntress do you think that seems appropriate the way to end a series
1: well if you're calling the arc full circle, it makes total sense.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're calling the arc full circle. So if you are circling back around to stuff that was all the way at the beginning of the run, then yes, this makes total sense. Um, I would hope that they do a Dynacentric issue mm-hmm. because of the way that they've structured the last – they structured last issue, and last issue was part one of the storyline. So sure. in my internal logic says the next one is Dinah. Then the last one is the birds. You know, I don't know okay. who would narrate it. Maybe Barbara would narrate it. I don't know.
0: Yeah. So, what was funny is when I was reading it the first time, I don't know how far I got. Maybe to the second page. Hopefully, I got to the second page. I thought that Barbara Gordon was narrating it on the first page because that's the first image you see is her. And, of course, Mm -hmm. it's the purple, and so sometimes she's associated with the purple narration boxes. And I was also thinking that... You know, she was narrating the previous one, so I was a little caught off guard. Hopefully it was actually the, f- the first page because I see that in like the one, two, the third panel or so down, it says Barbara was the one person. So yeah. hopefully I realized that Barbara Gordon wasn't acting like Julius Caesar in his commentaries and referring to himself <sighs> as the third person. So I was uh, I was a little Caesar turned was- off uh, only because I was used to that, but because we've got all this finis business going on and potentially tying up loose ends with her mother, it made Makes sense, but I am. If it were to end like this and only have hunters, I'd be a little disappointed. But I'm hoping that you're right and that Dinah also plays a part. And then the next one, maybe there. I guess Barbara. Barbara should be. She's the fitting one to end the series, not only because it's background the Birds of Prey, but just because she seems to be sort of the the head and the, and the the pivot point of all the the characters. So I'm hoping that that's how it ends. Yeah. Do you think there was too much narration throughout? Or do you think it was? Do you think it was about an average amount of narration?
1: I think the pacing was good. Um, it might have been a lot of narration. Um, perhaps it's to to get as much story in as possible because you only have what's going to be amount to about four um, parts of a story and. So that maybe they're trying to squeeze six parts, six issues into four or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, So maybe there's a little too much narration, but I don't think it slows it down Okay. by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to see. I mean, some of these... I felt like maybe there was a little much, if only because you would want more talking betwixt characters rather than herself. But mm-hmm. it does help out that it's Huntress. I think maybe if it were another character... Ah, uh, Dinah certainly, I think, is not as contemplative, and because it's Huntress thinking about her mother, going through the past, catching us up, and everything. I think it. You're right that it does. It makes sense, and it helps out yeah. the pacing. But, now I agree with you to a certain extent about the pacing, but do you think the timeline of it is uh, too condensed and quick with everything that's happening? It seems within a day or two, and then I brought up that point where, well, you go from courthouse to funeral, and then there's the fight at the judge's house, and then right to Arkham, and it seems like burn rate just randomly appeared in Arkham. Do you think we're skipping some stuff, or it's just like, it's really quick?
1: I agree with you in that it's a weird, almost non sequitur that Mm -hmm. suddenly burn rates at, arkham after the car chase and i don't know what how much time is supposed to have passed between the car chase and the scene at arkham because up until this point which is page 19 you've got it's basically stuff happening within what 48 to 72 hours it's probably the the yeah, time frame of the I like two or three so. days yeah because i, I can buy that I can buy that within 24 hours of going to the um going to court that she's looking at the judge. I don't know if I would have sandwiched I don't know where I don't know if the, if the if the funeral should have been placed before the court date or not, you know, like maybe things should have be been shuffled up until that point, but it is like all of a sudden we're in Arkham Asylum is it the same night? Yeah. Or is it the next night and it's, um, that could have, that could have been solved with just a sentence in a narration box? Mm -hmm. Like, I know the clock tower at the end is from the same, um, I believe it's from the same night, right? Or is it not?
0: I think the same night as the judge battle. It's probably the night of the funeral.
1: So is this, it's, okay, so she goes to the, um, she gets into the motorcycle chase. Yes shakes off Burn rate. she doesn't go to Arkham.
0: No, but Burn Raid does.
1: Burn rate does, but yes. Huntress doesn't. Huntress, Huntress goes, goes to the clock tower. Correct, yep. So the the clock tower and the Arkham scene, we can guess, are probably happening around the same time. I would think so. Okay. Um, and I understand why they're in the order that they are. yes. But I think maybe just a extra sentence in some of those setting boxes would have just cleared up like that this is all happening. Yeah. The same like later that night an hour later or Mm -hmm. something especially where you have an establishing shot of Arkham and all of a sudden Burn rate's there when Burn rate had been where she had run away and Burn rate was just kind of like sitting all disabled on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. So you know it's like or at least put a panel of burn rate getting back up and going off somewhere. like, you know, the, the, the that could have, that could have been, a, um, that could have been a better uh, segue.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad we agree that that was a weird moment. Cause I thought, how did burn Ray get there so quickly? Yeah. Did you, do you know anything about Blackbird? No. Okay. So Blackbird's power set. Well, hopefully I think, uh, did they tell you? Oh, they
1: Is she dance. the one who can kind of control their
0: minds, or was that... Uh, she, yeah, and she can uh, take take your powers. Like, she sort of, not really absorbs them, but she, I guess she kind of absorbs them. So she can potentially take whatever powers you have. Kind
1: of like Rogue?
0: Yes. I don't think she needs to touch you, though. Okay. Uh, so so we'll, like, yeah.
1: So, like, if you had Jericho... Oh, dear. Well, because Jericho had that thing where he makes eye contact with you and his eyes get all Mm crazy-like. But instead of disappearing and going into your body, he takes your powers. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we'll we'll see. I always imagined that she would be back and here she is. And what a ragtag team it is. What do you think? Do you have any thoughts of where this is going to end now that we've read two parts of it?
1: This will end with a sh- obvious showdown between the two teams. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody on the villain's side dies. I would say that it either ends with the birds coming together and realizing that they need to be together. And like, you know, we head triumphantly into whatever the next series will be, or there's some sort of devastating blow and they walk away mm. from it.
0: Okay. Do you think that Phineas Hunter's mother is going to walk away from this?
1: That's a good question and I'm not 100% sure. Yeah.
0: I'm I'm wondering, or, I don't know.
1: Or yeah. if or if I'd hate to see Helena be the one who doesn't walk away from it, oh, but wow, like, yeah. you know, it it's it's also yeah. a possibility based on what they've what they are setting up here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because we have to end it somehow, so it's got to be some sort of blow, like maybe it's just too much. So I feel like there's got to be some sort of emotional trauma, unfortunately, Uh to to happen, and I'm wondering if it'll be Phineas. And it's unfortunate because Phineas isn't necessarily going along with these people. It's just that she was taken out of Arkham, but, you know, appearances to the contrary for the birds and for Mm -hmm. Huntress. Okay, well, any other thoughts on this particular issue?
1: Just a couple, like, really weird nitpicks about... Artwork which I more or less enjoyed. Mm -hmm. I, how uh, this is this is an issue I've had with Batgirl, too. Like, Huntress (laughs) looks like she's too young in some of these panels because she's supposed to be.
0: I would say she's older than Batgirl,
1: she's older than Batgirl. I would place her closer to 30.
0: I would agree with that. And
1: there's a lot of times where I'm looking at her and she looks like she's like 20. Yeah. And so she's being drawn like too young. Like I've always associated Helena as being older mm-hmm. than, um, and Dinah almost like Helena is almost like if there's a if there's a, a tearing, like Dinah's the oldest one, and Helena is the middle. Like Helena's almost the middle child mm. in a sense, and Batgirl's the kid. Hmm. So Helena's kind of the Jan, but
0: okay. Um, <laughs> Oh, man. I would almost say that Dinah is a little closer to Babs. I mean, she had a rock career. I think she was pushing 30 yeah, but, with that but rock Dinah,
1: career. Dinah is the Marsha. Oh, my. Dinah is so Marsha. So, I don't know. I just think basically with the whole thing with her, her the history with her, and granted, I'm basing my stuff of, of what comics I read as a kid, so I don't know what oh, the ages sure. of these characters are.
0: Well, but, yeah. If we went with like pre-new 52, I could absolutely yeah, agree with that timeline. Yeah, yeah.
1: But I, but I just think that, that Helen is drawn a little too young, but that just might be the style. The other thing, and this is just an odd little nitpick, the panel on page nine... At the very top, with the funeral, did Gus have a family?
0: He had a mother. Okay. Where else are we here? Let's see. Let's see what else we see. Here we are. Uh, so the woman crying, I assume, would be his mother. Okay. Or so, no, I'm sorry. The woman that is leaning on the, uh, on the casket. coffin. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Second of all. I've, granted, I've only been to a few funerals in my life. Sure. Thankfully. I've never seen the guy with the shovel at the ceremony for the funeral.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, he is there. Third. I think the guy she, behind him is also someone who works there.
1: Yeah, like like the funeral employees, funerary employees usually wait. Yeah. Third, and this is, this is just a, a fashion thing on my part. Dinah and Barbara, like later on, there you know later on it, it would work. But like during the ceremony, shouldn't they be wearing like cardigans or suit jackets or something? <laughs> I'm so used to people at funerals uh, sure. a wearing black, but being like women being more conservatively dressed, where like sure. you know they really are covering. Yeah. you know they wouldn't be showing like strappy dresses. Now when they're arguing later on and they're away from the funeral. Yeah, it makes you know. Perhaps they took their jackets off sure. or whatever off, but I, and it like I said, it doesn't ruin anything about the story. But it's just like odd to me that it like they're wearing, you know, like it, they didn't dress down a cocktail dress, you know. Like. Yeah, yeah. No,
0: I agree with you. There.
1: <laughs> and again, that's just me being nitpicky, and it has no bearing on whether or not I like the story. It was just something I noticed as I was flipping through.
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah. As I was re-flipping through, I forgot about that key that Gus gave them, so that better pop up soon. Yeah. Whatever that is used for. Okay. Well, what would you give this out of 10 birds?
1: Since it's obviously a setup for things to come, mm-hmm. I think it does a really, really good job of it. And I would give it a like a really solid 9 okay. out of 10 birds.
0: I think I will downgrade a little bit from you and give it an 8.5 out of 10 um, just with... That weird segue that got me going, and uh-huh. then you know, Huntress being a little put off that Huntress was the, the narrator, but then you know, going along with it, but just in the initially. So, eight point five out of ten. All right. Okay. Finally, we have Baccarol seventy-three, or as uh, the. Publishers like to say Batgirl 21. Father knows best, and yes, I was wrong. I thought it was James Jr., and it's actually about James uh, Gordon Sr. <laughs> writer Hope Larson, Art Scott Godlewski, Colors John Rauch. Somewhere in Burnside, a woman who looks conspicuously like Barbara Gordon is called to bed. And I had to flip. I tried to keep myself from flipping because I thought, what is this? Because I really thought it was Barbara Gordon. And I was reading and reading, but was so distracted by this that I had to flip ahead. And then I saw this random guy, and I thought, what is this? And I had to flip again. So anyway, that was my panic of wondering if um, Barbara Gordon was in some sort of relationship randomly. Okay, so anyways, this woman, who's actually not Barbara Gordon, has, to go, <laughs> yes, has to go through her skincare routine, which involves bioglass. So this woman is Claire, right? And she is suddenly attacked by a purple goo monster. I think there's a song about that. And left unconscious. The, the on
2: one-eyed, one-horned, <laughs> flying purple people eater?
0: Yes, that one. Okay. Um, and she's left unconscious on the bathroom floor. Hours later, Batgirl and the police are investigating the scene and the boyfriend. Batgirl listens to the story of the boyfriend and finds the cartridge of bioglass, which was also found at the other five victims' places, who went down under similar circumstances. Batgirl leaves the officer and goes to the Trop Bell Apothecary, I didn't even know they had apothecaries anymore, and breaks in only to discover Commissioner Gordon has also broken in in order to investigate. They agree to team up and go to the plant where the product is created, Green Sun Biotech. Once there, they observe the toxin and notice that it may be sentient. They take a sample in order to compare it with the victim's blood work, but it doesn't match up. Batgirl researches the company and finds that it was caught dumping biomatter, aren't they always, in the harbor under a different name. Batgirl's theory is that whatever they dumped gained consciousness and senses other parts of itself, traveling through the sewers to collect its parts from the bioglass that goes down the drain and also expunging itself from people. Backro and Gordon then observe a beautiful sunrise. At GCPD, Jim pours some bioglass down the locker room drain, and they are immediately attacked by the goo monster, which swallows up the commissioner and prevents Baro from pulling him out until she dives in with bleach, which seems very dangerous. It hardens and explodes. That girl feels like this was a successful team-up and says they should do it again while uh, she takes some evidence. <laughs> he catches her taking this evidence and she says it's for science, but she really wants a keepsake of their time together. Aww. He allows it because she reminds him of his daughter. Man alive. Later, father and daughter meet up. The actual father and daughter <laughs> meet up at a diner. Next, we have Head Games. I want to first say that the cover image is, in fact, a purple goo monster. But if you go on the solicitations or DC Comics, the the cover color is green, and it makes it look suspiciously like Swamp Thing. And so I wonder if after solicitations they made the color be changed to purple and not green. Okay. I don't know. But I, I just it. thought that was interesting when I looked on I was like, why is Swamp Thing on the... You know other comics. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's start with the good. I remember you you said something that seems to me like you may not have liked this as much. So let's start with <laughs> what we did like, and that is art. Did you have a favorite page or panel from this issue?
1: I have two panels. Ooh, lovely. One is the very last page. Okay. I just I like that diner wow. shot. Yeah. I think it's a it's just a it's nice, well composed shot. Yeah. The other one is on page eleven. It's the top panel um, establishing shot of Gotham hospital. And Barbara is standing up against the wall outside the emergency room texting or or futzing around on her cell phone. And I just I <laughs> like, like that panel. Kids. Yeah, it's just, you know, if she's supposed to be, you know, kind of millennial or 20 something back or like it's it's totally it's very like accurate to somebody of her age. And mm-hmm. I just I like it. I, and, and it didn't. And I also like that. It nowhere in that panel is it implied that she's doing research for the case. She's just fussing around on her cell phone. So I just thought that was a cute little touch because it wasn't necessary. Sure. So I, I did I did like that.
0: I like the previous page where she and Jim are going through different aspects of the plant and just not what well, I was about to say, wordless, but it's not really. But it's really focusing on the biomatter, and I, I like mm-hmm. the especially the silhouettes. I always like silhouettes. I just think they're a lot of fun. At the very bottom, where... Jim and and Becker are running, and then you know you have got the thought balloon of Dad. You have no idea, but yeah. just you know I like the eerie purple glow that you have with with the biomatter and them uh, hanging out together. But I absolutely agree with you. The last page as well is just so lovely because of them spending time together. And as a big fan of Gilmore Girls, they always show you know not always, but very often they show closing shots of Rory and Lorelai and Luke Steiner on the outside like this. So it's very reminiscent of that as well, but just mm-hmm. yeah, real special.
1: I like how it's lit too.
0: Yes, yeah, you can tell it might be late, maybe not. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, here's here's a question. Do you? What are your thoughts on this monster? And I guess this might be a leading question, but do you think that it was too close to Clayface with sort of you know pieces of himself and being able to to connect and find those pieces? And why not just go with Clayface? What are your thoughts on this goo monster?
1: yeah that's a good that's a good point and I think it is a little too close to Clayface it also reminded me a little bit of the protoplasm from the Matrix Mm -hmm. from Supergirl the Peter David Supergirl run where like you know where there was a point where kind of Matrix had manifested itself the protoplasm had I was reminded of that a little bit Mm -hmm. that scene you liked on that panel the page you liked where she's she touches the tank and the Goo all goes toward her hand. Reminded me of, and I think you'll get this because I think you've watched the show, the Venom storyline on the Spectacular Spider Man cartoon where, like, they would touch the tank and it's like, especially Eddie was like, I think it's talking to me. And it, it, I mean, I know we weren't going that direction, but kind of, I just was reminded of that. But they've done that with various, um, that's been done, and that's a science fiction trope where somebody gets the, like, you know, the the thing kind of comes toward. Him or her, but yeah, it's it's way too. It could have, they should have just used Clayface. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, 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 I was, it's also reminiscent of the blob.
5: Oh boy, you know, the
1: old, but either version because I've only seen the, this version from the 80s, but um. But I mean, that's just kind of like what I was reminded of. So, but, but at the same time, like if you're going for that sort of like science fiction creature feature throwback and stuff, I, I don't think they committed it. I don't know if Hope Larson committed enough to it. It, I don't know. It, yeah. I, I, this wasn't, I mean, it, it had its moments, but this was not a, a one off that I was like, oh, this is a, this is really cool. It just, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, The Blob, which certainly horrified me as a young child, or is it Ghostbusters 2, where, like, goop comes out of the bathtub?
1: I think you're right.
0: So I guess that was protoplasm, I don't know. But yeah, I sort of think about that. But then either way. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a little while since I've seen it, but the Batman the animated series episode, and I know that it's Donovan's favorite where Tim is with this little girl, like he's trying to help this little girl, and you don't realize until the very end that the little girl is a manifestation of Clayface.
4: And he's, and he's like trying yes. to
0: find that piece of him. So it just mm-hmm. reminds me because it just seems like absolutely Quayface would be able to suck pieces of himself out of other people if yeah. that happened, or he would be able to find it. And so I thought, where where is this coming into play? But yeah, yeah.
1: Now, now your comment about apothecaries. If if Burnside <laughs> is supposed to be brook, like a Brooklyn and it's <laughs> it's inhabited by hipsters, of course there's somebody. <laughs> Somebody with like a beard or like you know basically, I just think a of like Experian Port- hat. Uh, yeah, like uh, basically like a character that you would see on like Portlandia, okay. and of course they would open a, they would open an apothecary. They would call it an apothecary where you're like it's a it's a stupid like New Age drugstore. Come on, mm. but yes,
0: yeah, uh, Batgirl taking this evidence at the end, I, I sort of it felt weird. Uh, she's being a little shifty about it. Don't you think uh, it would be, well, number one, what do you think about that scene? I mean, it's cute in the end, but why, why is she acting that way? But also, don't you think it's dangerous to have uh, this piece of a monster in your room in a fish tank when, you know, the Justice League have things like that in a vault? Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that scene?
1: It's it's a it's a dumb way to show a point about her sentimentality or her okay. love for her father. <laughs> it's Yeah, it, it doesn't make much sense, yeah. you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, there could have been some safer way to do it. I mean, we've seen Batgirl take selfies with people. She just took a recent... Recently, she took a selfie with Frankie and Alicia, So or Alicia. So it'd be easy for her to take something with uh, Jim Gordon to, you know, maybe the goop monsters in the background. So that would have been an easier way. But it just seems like really weird, especially when she says it's for science. You're like, oh my gosh, is she going to turn evil and start creating some sort of thing? And he lets her... Let's her take it. So I thought there's no discussion on this, and we just have a discussion between her and Kadir on that that emotional. Remember to to try mm-hmm. to manipulate people's emotions. We had an ethical discussion about that, so it yeah. just felt very odd. But I I liked that she took it for you know remembering sake. But I think there's a better way potentially to do that.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, do you think her conclusions about the monster seemed logical given what they knew at the time? So when she went to her monologue about how everything was coming about she's like this is my theory and then you know (laughs) does it make sense given what they knew the evidence that they had or was it a leap Uh, i
1: guess it makes sense but i don't get the whole it's gained consciousness somehow (laughs) sure like there's more to this story but at the same time and I don't know if this is going to go beyond this episode, episode, sorry, issue. Like, is she going to investigate this company? Like what? And to see how this game sentience, Mm -hmm. because you might want to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I realize she kind of considers the case closed, but what other things are they, you know, like what is causing this? You know, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's logical but I don't think it later on that she says that she's gonna go follow up on the investigation yeah. into this It's like all of a sudden it's like oh I got my memento from my case that I did with dad and mm-hmm. on to the next case it's like no 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 you've got to go back and figure out what Burnside and greenson um have been doing sure how 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 has this become a sentient? being. Yeah. Yeah, there there's a that's a and usually like I can let some loose ends go. I think that's the loose end that you can't Yeah. That you can't let go in a case like this if you're if you're
0: her. Yeah, everything seemed to come together very quickly in that one monologue. Like, they were investigating, they were hitting dead ends, and then all of a sudden she had a thought. And I know she's super intelligent, but that did seem a bit of a leap and perhaps convenient just for story's sake. And I wonder if there's, you know, this one page maybe that they they discover something else. But, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, how does it gain sentience? I guess that they have the clue uh, that maybe it is sentient, but then the how is the question. Mm Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts on the interaction between uh, Jim and Batgirl, since it was such a father-daughter issue?
1: He knows, right?
0: (laughs) I don't think so. Come on. I don't know. Well, We had a discussion yesterday, or or not yesterday. We had this discussion. Last time, yeah. Yes, last episode, where, you know, who doesn't know about uh, looking through big eye holes? It's him. I don't know. I would hope, I really hope so. And he's just in denial.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a pretty – it's probably the better thing in the issue. Sure. So I think it's a pretty uh, – it's pretty good. I think the two characters have a good chemistry. But yeah, I just – I there's such a disparity between the way she's written here and the way she's written in the other book. I know. And it it's very glaring. And um, I think her in the other book is a stronger character. Mm-hmm. And if you had some of those qualities carry over to her relationship with her father, or at least on her solo stuff in this book, I think it would be a stronger book.
0: Yeah. Or if you identified that maybe this is she's a younger backroll here, and she's mm-hmm. and the other one takes place in a different time. Yeah. And it's later on. Then you could also. Yeah. I think more. It's hard to reconcile go, the two. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I yeah I really liked it in here. Uh, You know this is one of my favorite relationships in DC Comics. You know I'm a big shipper, but I also platonically ship people as well, and I I think it worked really well. They worked well together. Uh, I think it was written well. It wasn't. uh, Sometimes you have Jim Gordon like sort of talking down to Batgirl. That that has happened in the Uh past, and that didn't happen here. And there were cute moments, and I felt some 60s, Silver Age, Bronze Age flashbacks where she almost trips. Up and says dad aloud but then has to catch herself because that happened a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Bronze Age and, and, and thinking sort of almost double speak I guess I don't, not double think sir not double think but double speak where <laughs> she's Uh, Saying something outwardly, but thinking something to herself, uh, sort of as Barbara Gordon. But yeah, I think I agree that this is probably uh, the the best part of this issue. And in the Burnside run, one of my favorite issues was when she teamed up with Jim as the robo bat when he was uh gym bat. Okay. And so my only problem with it is that this almost makes it seem like that didn't happen. It mm-hmm. was like, this is the first time we're teaming up and that's why I need a momentum. Whereas you actually teamed up before and it was a really awesome team up, but there is no sort of connection with that, which made me a little frustrated, especially since I know we're on 21 here, but that's why I call it 73. Cause really you are coming off of that Burnside run. So a little disappointed with that, but overall I, I liked the relationship.
1: Yeah. I like them. I have a as a platonic relationship between the two. They're clearly in the top five, at least in my head. Mm-hmm. So, but another another Commissioner Gordon relationship being up there, oh. which is him and Batman.
0: Oh, okay. Other parts, I, I thought you were about to say Sarah Essen.
1: No, no, that that's actually an actual relationship. I meant like platonic friendships in the DCU, or sort of a similar. Because like in the classic DCU, you've got like. These two, and you got him and him and Bruce's friends, or him and Batman as friends. But then you've got like relationships like um, Dinah and Roy Harper mm. in the classic sense that she was very much like a mother to him.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: I've always liked the, despite what certain writers of certain Titans miniseries we just covered <laughs> think, I've always liked the brother sister relationship between Dick and Donna. Mm because um, I've always seen them as almost sort of like a, a brother-sister type mm-hmm. couple as opposed to, um, you know, hooking up. Um, I've always liked the relationship, at least in the post-crisis, that Perry White had with Lois Lane. There's sort of like that he's like this... That she like drives him nuts, but he has a lot of respect for her. There's just this great working relationship and, and stuff like that. So, you know, the, the when you get some really good character character moments especially during kind of my formative years of reading dc stuff um it made it made for such a rich cast of Mm -hmm. of the various books that you read and and these two are no exception
0: absolutely well my final question before i know you have some some thoughts to to put out there is it safe to be doused in bleach
1: i don't think so i think bleach (laughs) i think i think And and I'm I'm not willing to test this, but I believe (laughs)
0: do a Tide pod challenge.
1: No, um, I believe that getting like undiluted bleach on the skin would. start to burn. If it's direct contact with the skin, mm-hmm. it'll burn you okay. badly. That's
0: what I thought.
1: Yeah. So you're always I, supposed to
0: wear gloves if you're cleaning.
1: Yeah. Well, you notice they are wearing gloves and Yeah. Um, but if cover-alls. she throws
0: that thing in, in the monster with him, how is, if, if the monster is one sort of viscous what's stopping that mixture from hitting jim inside
1: that's a really good question unless it it, it hardens on the outside and Mm -hmm. absorbs the bleach on an outside layer enough to just uh, yeah i don't think the i don't think hope larson worked the physics out (laughs) because because you would think that it would it would crack or it would freeze and crack around him but if it's viscous and it's gooey on him it would get on him as well maybe the maybe the goo dilutes the bleach Enough, mm-hmm. but they do go and shower almost like right after.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: So maybe maybe they are able to wash it off before it like really really starts to burn. But I'm pretty sure that if you mix bleach, if you if you get bleach on yourself and you let it sit long enough, it'll burn your skin. Because wow. I think we've all gotten like a little bit of bleach on our hands. Like if you're doing laundry and you splash a little bit. Yeah. So also, don't mix bleach and ammonia. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you for that, sir. I've
1: never done that, but that is that is a pretty uh, a bad a, thing. It's a it's toxic. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, your your other thoughts, other things coming into this issue or coming out of this issue, I suppose.
1: This is continuing on, and Birds of Prey is not.
0: And, you, and your big question is why?
1: <laughs> yeah, I I aside from sales, I, yeah. you know, I mean, I just I, I I enjoy that Birds of Prey series or what I've read of it, um, and I think I'm actually going to. Even I, I don't even know if I'll be on for the next two issues, but I think I'll read the next two issues. Just
0: to finish it up, yeah. Just to
1: finish it up because I, I really do enjoy the storyline. You know, even the. Sure. Yeah. But this, I was just, just like, this was another one where I was like, meh. It's not as bad as that one that we read like a little while back with the flashback to Barbara and Dick. And it was like, what, where is all of this coming from? Sure. <laughs> it's not that bad, mm-hmm. but this was just kind of, it was kind of like meh. It was very meh to me.
0: Uh, I'm on Comicron now. Oh, dear. So Comicron tells me that Backroll sold less than Birds of Prey.
1: DC hasn't announced anything.
0: So, Bat- about Backroll
1: About Birds. Aside from the fact oh, that, that the title is going no, out.
0: No, it hasn't. So, Birds of Prey uh, got 25247 25, so particular, uh-huh. And Backroll is 18000 So, a 7000 drop. So you just hope
1: Larson's run ending soon and they're gonna but they haven't have there's no news whatsoever. I
0: haven't heard any news. Okay. Um but no that that is certainly yeah, I have no idea. But I think they wanna keep one. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. It's been, there's been a new 52. There's a been a back roll since new 52. Yeah. So I think they want to keep one, but yeah, why mm-hmm. not go with the other one? I'm not sure.
1: And I've been, I, and I just read like over the weekend, I just read the latest previews. Yep. And I don't remember what, <laughs> like, I kind of blew through it and I was yeah. like, eh, so.
0: Okay. I guess we'll see. Yeah. I don't know okay well what would you and i will say there is that really weird and i saw someone on twitter also brought it up how the cop says it's it's like two in the morning it's yeah. two in the morning it says 2 a.m and then the cop is like i have to take my children to school can we hurry this up and you're thinking to yourself you know what type of school is going to be that early but you know That's i gotta get my home in time to drive my kids to school <laughs> so you know 3 a.m
1: yeah there, there's you know um like yeah, yeah you could have my shifts almost over sure. could have been better go, dialogue yeah. there can i go now that's,
0: so that's a nitpick i think yeah. my greatest issue is the monster i think there could have been a better villain to do i mm-hmm. think you know the, the main point of this issue is certainly that relationship and the team up so i think could there have been a better way for them to, yeah. to get together and do it so that'd be my thing yeah. uh so grade on this
1: and about a four and a half.
0: Whoa. Wow. You always shock me with your low grades because um, I have to be really angry to give that low. Uh, I'm going to give it a solid, I'm going to say a seven. Seven out of ten. All
4: bats. Right. Yeah. I
0: think so. Okay. Well, now over to Chris for his Batman Adventures review.
4: Ah, that's like having your taxes filed and paid by the deadline and having some dough left over to get some Batman books. Thank you very much, Emma Peel, er, Stella. Hello, Batfans. Welcome once again to the Batman Adventures review segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I am very glad to be with you. In this segment, I'll be covering Batman Adventures number four. Remember, this is the 90s comic book title based on the animated series of the time. Batman Adventures number 4 was cover dated January 1993 and had a cover price of $1.25. Our story is entitled Riot Act. It was written by Martin Pascal, pencils by Brad Rader, inks by Rich Burchett, and colors by Rick Taylor. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. This story was reprinted in Batman The Collected Adventures Volume 1, which was released in 1993, and also in the Batman Adventures Volume 1, which was released in 2015. This issue appears to be available on Comixology. Riot Act, Act 1, Panic in the Streets. In downtown Gotham, an L train suddenly goes out of control and off the rails. Batman manages to rescue two passengers. Meanwhile, at the train communications center, a switching operator tells an officer he suddenly couldn't read the switching instructions on the monitor. We smash cut two a not so tell shadowy figure watching the transpired events on TV with his henchmen. And they are told that Phase 1 of their plan is to go in effect immediately. In downtown Gotham City, Summer Gleason is reporting on the chaos throughout the city. Hundreds, perhaps thousands, of Gothamites are unable to read street signs, use ATMs, and public and municipal services are in disarray. The news broadcast is interrupted by the shadowy villain who announces himself as the architect of the New Order of Gotham. As he makes his decree and mentions a ransom, we get panels depicting happenings around Gotham, waitresses unable to read diner orders, libraries closed, and doctors and nurses unable to read medical charts at a hospital. Meanwhile at Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne, Alfred interrupts Bruce Wayne's slumber and puts on the interrupted news broadcast. Side note, we see that Bruce has a black eye from a battle with Clayface. Smash cut to Mayor Hamilton Hill's residence, where he is talking with Commissioner Gordon. The men mention the effects of this malady appear to be permanent, just as a suspicious TV repairman who fixed Mayor Hill's TV starts to leave. Act 2. Help on the Wing. In the Batcave, Alfred and Batman discuss possible causes of this illiteracy plague. Could it be mass hypnosis? A drug in the water supply? Or some kind of gas? Batman takes necessary precautions and departs in the Batwing. Since classes are canceled at Gotham State University, Dick Grayson tells a classmate he's going home, but then goes to investigate as Robin on his motorcycle. He comes upon looting at a shopping center and does what he can to assist, as does Batman and the Batwing, but the situation looks desperate. Act 3. Robin Takes a Fall As Robin tries to stop looting at a shopping center, he winds up in an electronics store, and during a scuffle, he sees men actually not taking, but putting electronic devices on shelves. One of them turns on a boombox. Robin then sees the sign's letters change into unintelligible symbols. He goes to the parking lot and flags down the batwing that just happens to be flying by. Back in the Batcave, Robin tells Batman that he's now, quote, infected, and tells Batman that he theorizes the cause of the affliction is from planted televisions and stereos. Alfred tells the duo that he ran voice analysis on the villain's extortion broadcast, and it confirms Batman's hunch as to who the villain is. And back in the villain's lair, his gang is hard at work doctoring televisions. The villain says Mere Hill will soon be his next victim. And on the final page, we see that the villain is the Scarecrow. To be continued. This issue marks a change with the creative team. Our previous issues had Kelly Puckett as the writer, and here we had Martin Pascal. Ty Templeton had been the previous penciler, and here we had Brad Rader. However, Ty Templeton did do the cover of this issue. It depicts Robin being overpowered by looters with Batman leaping to his aid. Martin Pascal already had two decades worth of writing under his belt at the time this came out, and before that, he was a letter hack to comic books. Martin Pascal may be best known to comic book fans for his work on Superman in the 1970s and 80s. Pascal has also written for comic strips, television, and novels. Martin Pascal also won a Daytime Emmy for his work on Batman the Animated Series, and he has numerous writing credits. He gave nice nods to past Batman editor Jack Schiff and artist Sheldon Maldov, being named as Streets in Gotham City. Rader is an Emmy winner himself, which he won in 1999 for his work on Todd McFarlane's Spawn. Raider does work as a storyboard artist and has a website called Raider of the Lost Art. This is Robin's first appearance in this title, which is a nice change of pace. Overall, this issue is a decent opening, part one, with just a few quibbles. The TV repairman looks facially a lot like Alfred, which made me do a double take. Scarecrow's ransom is never clear, nor is the figure explicitly stated on how much money he exactly wants. The last page reveal of Scarecrow being the villain behind the plot is a bit anticlimactic, as I think even a lesser casual Batman fan would be able to recognize his shadowy outline in the previous panels he appeared in. I wouldn't say the writing or artwork slips that much from the previous three issues. It's certainly not bad. Rich Burchett still is doing the inking here, but the lines just don't seem as thick and heavy as the previous issues. Scarecrow had a different gimmick here, with no one being affected by fear in the traditional sense. No one in the populace is afraid of anyone. Batman isn't afraid of anyone, nor is anyone afraid of Batman. People have just lost the ability to read. Interesting. I'm giving Batman Adventures number 4 a solid 7 out of 10 bats. Now for my segment within a segment, Nightwatch, where I'll take a quick peek at the Nightwing title. This time with issue numbers 40 and 41 which are the most recent at the time of this recording. No real shipper alert in issue number 40. Nightwing escapes from his submerged trap. Helen talks to Dick through a door, and Dick doesn't respond. Later in the same issue, Nightwing talks to Lucy, and we see Nightwing discovering that the judge coerced Lucy into duping Nightwing into his previous trap. Next, in issue 41, Nightwing escapes from a casino explosion, and he finally takes down the judge. So, no, repeat no shipper alert in Nightwing numbers 40 and 41. This concludes this segment of Nightwatch. Long-time fans of the backworld to Oracle podcast know that I used to review the Batman 66 title and the subsequent crossovers on this podcast. Well, some Batman 66 news dropped since the last recording. There will be a six-issue Archie meets Batman 66 limited series, which will start this July. Jeff Parker and Mike Morrissey will be writing it, and Dan Parent will draw it. I think Mark L, Mike Allred is going to do one of the covers uh, for the first issue, and I'm really looking forward to this. I expect to cover this when this drops, so please stay tuned. I did get some nice feedback from the last segment from good friend of the show, Laurel at Mountain Flower one over on Twitter. And Laurel, thank you so much. Laurel wrote in to say, Just listen to your last Batman Adventure segment now that I have the library book to follow along. Thank you for the shout-out. I like the way you emphasize the three acts like the TV show. I disagree that Joker needs a reason to cause chaos. I think he likes to stir things up in Gotham just to upset the populace, to upturn the status quo. Plus, Batman will always try to stop him, which the Joker also likes. I really enjoyed these first three issues, but the artist's change on issues four and five seems darker, although it's the same colorist. Maybe the new penciler put in too much shading. Plus, an appearance by Kane and Abel is just bizarre. I'll be interested to hear what you think, Take care. Signed, Laurel. Yes, thank you for writing in, Laurel. I wasn't quite sure how to put the, quote, chaos thoughts into words. And, you know, I was hoping someone would disagree with me on this, because, frankly, I'm not sure the point I was trying to make myself. I'm not sure if I was looking for a motive, because, like as you say, the Joker certainly doesn't need one. I guess I was looking for something more in this particular issue that I just can't quite put my finger on. Now, I agree with you the darker look of this particular issue and the next one. I think you're onto something with the shading. I agree this issue seemed to have a darker quote look to it. And yes, Laurel, nice catch on those cameo appearances who will be in the next issue. How cool is that? I did like the cameos, and I am a sucker for any cameo appearances by other DC characters in a book. I love it. Laurel, thanks for writing in. Take care of yourself. Let me know if you agree or disagree with my spin on this issue. Do you prefer a more traditional fear motif with the Scarecrow, or did this plot work and seem in character for you? I'll be interested to hear what you think. Hey, and listeners, what say you? You can contact me on Twitter where my handle is at B2NBatBooks. You can also direct message me there. You can also leave your thoughts for this segment or for the Backworld to Oracle podcast in general on the Batman Universe website for this particular episode. Speaking of the Batman Universe website, please consider lending your support to the website that provides excellent content of Batman-related news, reviews, editorials, and other fine, fine podcasts. You can support the Batman Universe via Patreon by following a link on the Batman Universe homepage or by making a one-time donation for any amount you choose on a separate link on the homepage website. Shout out to Stella. Along with this show, you can check her out on the Batman Universe Comics Podcast and the Require Reading Podcast. She's also going to do some upcoming voiceover work on Robin Everyone Loves the Drake. Check that out. Quick shout out to the Sutlands. Be sure to check out the podcast World Worlds, Trigger Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, Fantastic Fantasies, and their new one, Convention Correspondence. Shout out to my pal, Jerry Green, where you can find his written reviews of Batgirl, Birds of Prey, and Mother Panic on the TBU website. And also, the Batbooks for Beginners podcast, where you can also find me. On the Batbooks for Beginners podcast, we'll review trade paperbacks featuring Batman and related characters. Please give it a try if you're not doing so already. Listeners, if you'd wish to contact me directly by email, you can reach me at bruce.wayne at GothamCity.us, and again you can find and follow me on Twitter where my handle is at BetBooks. Thank you for your support. Will Robin and Gotham City be cured of the illiteracy plague? Will the Scarecrow collect his ransom demand? Will Batman be able to scout the scarecrow? And if so, how? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these engrossing, enchanting, endless, enduring enigmas will be unenveloped and enlightened next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight.
0: Okay, we're winding down here. Uh, we have our my <laughs> anime watch list where I remember I give a movie and a TV. Recommendation that is anime, and I tell you if it's uh, new anime recommended or seasoned. So here, these two are separate, but they're similar in sort of a weird, not supernatural, but time esque. Well, I guess one of them supernatural, the other one is why well, I, I can't explain it. So I'll just go. Okay, so the, the TV is erased in J- Japanese. It is Boku dake ga inai machi? Twelve episodes. 2016, pretty recent. When tragedy is about to strike, Satoru Fujinuma finds himself sent back several minutes before the accident occurs. The detached 29-year-old manga artist has taken advantage of this powerful yet mysterious phenomenon, which he calls revival, to save many lives. However, when he is wrongfully accused of murdering someone close to him, Satoru is sent back to the past once again, but this time to 1988, 18 years in the past. Soon he realizes that the murder may be connected to the abduction and killing of one of his classmates the solitary and mysterious kayo hinazuki that took place when he was a child. This is his chance to make things right. Boku Dakega Inai Machi follows Satoru Satoru in his mission to uncover what truly transpired 18 years ago and prevent the death of his classmate while protecting those he cares about in the present. This was really great. It was very gripping. It's got, I guess, some supernatural, if you want to consider that going back in time sort of situation, almost like that movie where the father and the daughter connect over the... um, Over the radio waves. I can't remember what that was called. But Jim Caviezel's in it. And and, uh, no, it wasn't Father Daughter's father's son. Jim Caviezel and Dennis Quaid. It's like in the late 90s. Do you know what this is called? Do you remember this movie? Frequency. Frequency, yes. So it kind of feels like that. But uh, very gripping, like I said. Uh, Mystery, drama, and, you know, as little kids, you're sort of getting to know these little kids, and he's trying to save people and save this person that uh, was killed in the present. So, whew. I would say that it is new anime viewer approved. I think that if you gave it a chance, you would really like the drama attached to it. If you don't like anime, it actually has on Netflix a live action version of it. Still I think 12 episodes, so you could always try that if you want. And it is Japanese with English subtitles. They haven't dubbed yet. And then finally is, uh, or second, is Colorful, which is a movie. It came out in 2010. I... Like the letter, I died and was kicked out of the cycle of reincarnation because of the sin I committed. An angel told me that I <laughs> won a lottery and he gave me a chance to remember the sin. My spirit possessed the body of the 14 year old boy Makoto who committed suicide and I tried to recollect my memory. I felt distressed by the terrible circumstances of Makoto and the fact that I was borrowing his body. I have started to realize that people are hurting each other because the world is too colorful to distinguish the too true color of themselves from others. Uh, there's a big Not really Cliffhanger, but um, Swerve. What are those things called? Plot twist. There's a huge plot twist uh, near the end of it when you figure out who the I is, but you have no idea because he's supposed to figure it out and sort of get his second chance. This was... That's funny. I just said I. I thought that this was really good. There were some issues I had with it, in particular the characters and also how hateful I becomes to certain characters. It's not the best one, but I thought that it was pretty interesting and an interesting premise. I would say that it is new anime viewer approved, and there is an English dub with it, if you would like that. There you go. My two recommendations, Colorful, the movie, and Erased. Okay, so now on to Tom's favorite, this is the only reason why it comes on, remember, his favorite <laughs> segment, <laughs> Literature Recommendations. Now, you promised us last episode, you said, there's a book that I've yet to complete, so I'm going to save it for the next episode. And we're all waiting with bated breath to hear what that was.
1: Oh, I did finish it. Uh, that was The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Oh,
0: fine. You've never read that. I had
1: never read that, and I got Exciting. it. Exciting. Um, I bought it at Barnes & Noble because they were having like a buy-to-get-one-free sale for like – and I had I had picked up like one or two other books or whatever. And uh, if, if you're unfamiliar with The Road, it's uh, a post-apocalyptic story in which a man and his young son are – walking to um basically they're they're trying to walk toward the the coast thinking that that in wherever they are they will they will find something there that will help sustain them because they basically live in this world that has been turned upside down and they have to avoid like roving packs of cannibals and it's it's really really just bleak and it is them just just taking this journey and um it is uh really i think i read it in the span of like uh a few days or whatever like so when i talked to you last time i had just started it or i was oh, okay. like you know halfway through it and i had to put it down for you know <laughs> for practical reasons like you know for um because you know life gets in the way mm-hmm. that i can't sit at home and read all day but um <laughs> it's you really like i know but, like, I've never read any Cormac McCarthy. I've only seen – the only Cormac McCarthy I've ever been familiar with was No Country for Old Men, oh, and I've yeah. only seen the film. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know. I was, like, worried that this was going to be, like, really plotting and stuff, and it's not. It's It's, it's not. really, really intriguing, and, um, and I disturbing. really recommend it. It's very disturbing, but that it's so –
0: basement section with the cannibals.
1: Yeah, and – and I love how how he really allows you as the reader to fill in blanks as to how the world there got to be the world there and like you know there's a, there's some flashbacks here and there to the relationship to, uh, between the man and his wife, but there's no like huge flashback section detailing how everything came to be, right, yeah. uh, which can bog down dystopian works of literature goldstein's book um (laughs) so there's no goldstein's book in this particular uh you know what i mean but like so i really but i really really enjoyed this and i and and it's one that i think i would end up reading again um because it was just that that good
0: yeah and i think to a certain extent it it makes it makes you more nerve-wracked because you don't know how it all began
1: Mm-hmm. There, there's a claustrophobia to this thing. Yeah. Even though it's on the, on the open road, um, it's that claustrophobia of, like, you're only seeing, like, a certain part of a certain part of a country, and so you're only seeing, like, what what is, like, exactly around him, so you don't know, like, if the rest of the world is like this or if it's just this part, you know, like, so y- y- you feel very, very confined, even though it doesn't take place, like, all indoors and stuff, and um, whereas in – Say the Hunger Games, you eventually get like the whole detail of like the entire world of Panem and stuff, and you don't get that here. And like <laughs> yeah. the entire time you are kind of confined to what this person's experience is and it is it, it that keeps you on edge. That mm-hmm. that is unnerving at times. So, so yeah, I really, absolutely. really, really like the book.
0: I'm glad to hear it. Dev, you you've not seen all the pretty horses? He also wrote that.
1: No, I have not. I have. I haven't seen the movie version of the road either, Um, and uh, so that's that's one of my. I have a. I have another one that I'm almost done with, but I will make a recommendation though. I didn't know. Sounds good. No, no, I can. I can make it now. I mean.
0: Oh, oh, please,
1: because I'm. I'm like. I'm almost done with it. So. Okay. um, It's called the namesake, Uh uh, novel by. I'm gonna miss. I'm gonna butcher this woman's name, and I apologize. (laughs) Jhumpa Lahiri.
0: Oh. I've read this. Okay, so, continue.
1: I'll read the copy off the back. I'm on page. It's like 300 pages long. I'm on page around 200, so that's why I said I, I could recommend it at this point. Um, meet the Gang, Ganguly family, new arrivals from Calcutta, trying their best to become Americans, even as they pine for home. They the name they bestow on their first born Gogol betrays all the conflicts. Of honoring tradition in a new world, conflicts that will haunt Gogol and his own winding path through divided loyalties, comic detours, and wrenching love affairs. Winner of the Pulitzer Prize for a story collection, interpreter of maladies, um, Jhumpa Lahiri brilliantly illuminates the immigrant experience and the tangled ties between generations. It's really good. Um, I'm reading it actually for work. Uh, there's like a book club that they have oh. going that we're all getting professional development points for. Ooh. But it's run by the librarian, so she <gasps> didn't pick like you know, read this professional development book. Sure. Here's this. Here's this book, yeah. and I was like, okay, um, I hadn't heard of it, and uh, and it was. I'm really really enjoying it. It's 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 just this this window into um, a particular culture uh, the Bengali culture, and and she really the the three characters that she focuses on Google, and then his parents she really is she is a, uh, sorry she's really good at characterization and she's really good at fleshing out those characters and making you feel for them in one way or another and you are frustrated them with them at times you f- you feel bad for them you feel good for them and 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 so far like i said i'm i think I got about mm, a quarter a third or a quarter of the book left and um i'm just it's really really uh really enjoyable
0: mm-hmm I read that a while ago as on my little reading list so I agree with you. Any others?
1: Uh no, but I will say that a while back and and I tend to forward these to you because I know you like to you take advantage of them as well, but every once in a while Amazon will send me an email saying, "Hey, oh. there's like a 99 cent graphic novel sale or yeah. something." And they're usually digital. But Recently, there was one, I think it's because I bought like a digital graphic novel at some point. So I get like, you know, the the solicitations and uh, it was a Marvel digital graphic novel sale. And I bought one, two, three, four, five, six, two, three, seven graphic novels for about a 99 cents to about a buck 99 each. And we're talking things that in your LCS would probably retail. For about $20 to $30. Mm-hmm. So this is like Professor Allen levels of discount. Oh. But I got like, I got um I got uh, Spider-Man's The Death of Gene DeWolf. I got oh. two Walt Simonson um, Thor collections. I got Excalibur's Cross Timekeeper, The X-Men, Mutant Genesis, which is the very, very tail end of the Chris Claremont. Uh, stuff from X Factor and X Men, and then I got the death of Captain Marvel, as well as because I was like, why not for ninety nine cents, Dazzler the movie? Uh, but it was just if you if you're a person who's a regular customer of Amazon and you buy eBooks and you've expressed interest in stuff like graphic novels and comics, you tend to get those emails. Pay attention to them. Sometimes there's stuff in there that is really like you find some hidden gems that mm-hmm. like. You wouldn't normally a you either wouldn't normally spend forty dollars on because yep. those epic collections from Marvel are not cheap
3: no they're and
1: or B you've been waiting for to be able to afford it's like oh I could so just I, my advice is to always just kind of like take a glance at whatever when when you get the book recommendations and stuff from from companies like Amazon because sometimes they're really worth you know paying six seven dollars which is two comics so. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. so that's that's my my plug for Amazon. Your
0: literature to- recommendation and Amazon, yeah. Amazon's a lovely company. They could potentially take over the world. Mm-hmm. But I'd be okay with it because the world would be filled with books. So okay well I have several here one the first one was what I was in the midst of reading last episode and I finally finished it is Leia Princess of Alderaan by Claudia Gray it is Leia Organa's 16th birthday and she participates in the traditional ceremony where she declares her intention to one day take the throne of Alderaan but she's much more concerned about the way her parents are acting lately lots of meetings and late dinners and not talking to her as much as they used to eventually she discovers the reason for their secrecy their involvement in the increasingly organized rebellion when Leia decides to become involved herself in the fight against the Empire, whether her parents approve or not, she will have to prove to them that she's a valuable asset who must be allowed to take a stand, regardless of the risk to herself. Her stand will also put her at odds with the pacifist, young, Alderanian man who gives Leia her first kiss and her first real loss. I liked this. It's It very much reads, it's young adult and it very much reads like it. Of course, you know, you've got sort of teen... Uh, angst i guess to a certain extent or at least anxiety and you know wondering about her parents and and having issues growing up maybe that's not angst but uh you could potentially wrap it up and say it is and then you know her first crush and things like that but it gives you a peek into who leia was as a young lady and also her friendship with Haldo. so Haldo is also a character in there you might remember her as laura dern with the purple hair Yes. Okay. So I just wanted to be sure we were on the same page. So you get to know her and sort of how um, she's very interesting. She's she's an interesting person. And you would almost, I would con- compare her to a Phoebe <laughs> or <laughs> just kind of like a, a hippie-esque person. But she's pretty cool. So you also get that. So I recommend that. Then I put this on hold, and it took a couple months because I think people found out that, well, number one, it's like in the top ten. I think at one point it was number one on the Amazon bestseller list. Number two, Tom Holland's going to be starring in it, made a movie. And number three, I think it's very much connected to All the Light We Cannot See. So I think when people bought that, this was advertised, so I think because of how – well-received that book was. People wanted this. So this is called Beneath a Scarlet Sky by Mark Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Pino Layla wants nothing to do with the war or the Nazis. He's a normal Italian teenager obsessed with music, food, and girls. But his days of innocence are numbered. When his family home in Milan is destroyed by allied bombs, Pino joins an underground railroad helping Jews escape over the Alps and falls for Anna, a beautiful widow six years his senior. In an attempt to protect him, Pino's parents force him to enlist as a German soldier, a move they think will keep him out of combat. But After Pino is injured, he is recruited at the tender age of 18 to become the personal driver for Adolf Hitler's left hand in Italy, General Hans Leyers, one of the Third Reich's most mysterious and powerful commanders. Now at the opportunity to spy for the Allies inside the German High Command, Pino endures the horrors of the war and and the Nazi occupation by fighting in secret, his courage bolstered by his love for Anna and for the life he dreams they will one day share. I really liked this. This is, even though it says it's fiction, Mark Sullivan was interviewing the elderly Pino Layla. So it's very much his account of it, but I think there's so much like that had to be added or you know, when, when you start forgetting things that it, it couldn't be a true nonfiction through and through. Mm-hmm. But to know that this was based in fact, I think, or had a basis in, in fact, was uh, great. But it was very entertaining. I read through it very quickly and just, you know, I think goes... Again, to prove how young men and women really have to grow up rapidly in war and they just have to take on, you know, this maturity that they wouldn't have to in an in otherwise peaceful time. I wrote, I read a short story. It's been on my list for a while. It's by Kurt Vonnegut. It can be found in Welcome to the Monkey House, the collection. It's called Harrison Bergeron. It's about nine pages. It is a satirical and dystopian science fiction short story that he wrote in 1961. And I. I I don't really like Kravoniger too much mainly because of Slaughterhouse 5. So I only wanted to read that and then I brought the book back to the library. So in the year 2081, the 211th, 212th and 213th amendments to the constitution dictate that all Americans are fully equal and not allowed to be smarter, better looking or more physically able than anyone else. The Handicapper General's Agents enforce the equality laws, forcing citizens to wear handicaps. These could be masks for those who are too beautiful, loud radios that disrupt thoughts inside the ears of intelligent people, and heavy weights for the strong or athletic. And uh, it's very interesting, actually, uh, because you want everyone... This would be like a way to force equality on people. So, you know, for a nine-page story, I absolutely recommend this. Someone tries... Harrison tries to basically overtake uh this government or this place and well you would find out what happens i'm not going to spoil it Two other things, there was a sale, there was a Star Wars sale, and I got the Darth Vader series that was written by Kieran Gillen and art by Salvador La Roca. I think it was 2015, 2016, 25 issues, it seems like it's very much lauded by many as being a great Darth Vader tale, I really do recommend it, it takes place after the Battle of Yavin, and so it's you know picking up the pieces of the Empire as well as literally picking up the pieces of of the Death Star, and, you know, the Emperor, sort of not having faith in Darth Vader's abilities, constantly telling him he failed, and weirdly saying that he failed on Mustafar, like, that was your first fall, I'm like, well, I mean, you went to pick him up, though, so he didn't have to do so bad. And then, uh... Darth Vader going behind the scenes surreptitiously surreptitiously, to a certain extent, getting his own team. Um, And then this ends up making the Emperor very proud because he's like, now, you know, I I approve of you. But it was very entertaining. I will warn you, though, that, you know, there are four volumes, but then it misses a crossover called Vader Down. So when I was opening volume three, it skipped several issues. I'm like, what happened? So I have to go back and read that crossover. You don't miss... I guess it picks you up because it's got those little scrolling words, but I just say that. And then finally, and perhaps really importantly, and it'd be a good discussion book for um, required reading potentially, it's The Hate You Give. It's caused a little bit of controversy at the school that I work at here. Uh, this is written by Angie Thomas. Sixteen year old Star Carter moves between two worlds the poor neighborhood where she lives and the fancy suburban prep school she attends. Mm hmm. The uneasy. So this is like actually some kids that go to my school. The uneasy balance between these worlds is shattered when Star witnesses the fatal shooting of her childhood best friend Khalil at the hands of a police op- officer. And Khalil was unarmed. So, okay. Soon afterward, his death is a national headline. Some are calling him a thug, maybe even a drug dealer and a gangbanger. Proce- protesters are taking to the streets in Khalil's name. Some cops and the local drug lord try to intimidate Star and her family. What everyone wants to know is what really went down that night, and the only person alive who can answer that is Star. But what Star does or does not say could upend her community. It could also endanger her life. Very powerful. Don't expect a happy ending. And uh, lots of discussion could potentially be had with this novel. And it's one of those things that, again, empathy, you know, I sent that article to you about, you know, does fiction help
3: mm-hmm. teach
0: empathy? You know, this is certainly one of those that could be a, a case study, but this is not the time to have that discussion. But I do really recommend it. So there you go.
1: I'll recommend that Vader, uh, series. Oh, I, okay. I think I, have, I think I have the same exact um, two, three four. Yeah, and I don't have Vader down as yeah, well. I think see? we're in the same exact position. <laughs>
0: I was like, what? What's uh, this?
1: But I, I really like that series. Yes. And, and um, I will also recommend all of Welcome to the Monkey House. Um, oh, Harrison, Bergeron, okay. Harrison Bergeron is a story that I have taught. Um, I taught it oh. when I taught 10th grade advanced English. I did a whole short story and narrative essay unit. And I paired this with uh alan moore and dave gibbons for the man who has everything because we talked about uh the idea like idealism and equality and stuff um and some years it went really really well and other years it was like god forbid i assign you reading um i'm so glad i'm out of school um but yeah so i've it's it's a classic short story it's it's one of vonnegut's classics um there's another story in there there's two stories in that collection that I absolutely love um neither of them are science fiction. One of them is called the lie is has this I'm, i can't even talk about it without giving away the ending, so it's just basically. It's about a, a son and a father and the expectations, and and there's kind of a twist. There's this great piece of irony at the end, and it, it really speaks to something regarding in class and the hypocrisy of people. And then there is a very uh, kind of a cute – romantic story called long walk to forever. Oh, that is in that. In fact, funny enough, I think you and I must've checked this out at the same time, although I got it from my school library, not from the public library. Because I plan on using long walks of forever in my AP English class after the AP exam and because I've got like four or five, three or four stories. I've got this, I've got John Updike's ANP, I've got um there might be another one in Oh, Hills Like White Elephants by Hemingway. So just kinda like peppering them with short stories before I you know, send the seniors on the merry way. And Long Walk to Forever has always been one of my favorites. So um, I, I would highly recommend Welcome to the Monkey House, the Vonnegut short story. Co- yeah, it's, okay. it's just short story collections are one of those things, though, that like for me, like it takes me a while to read them Yeah. because I just like to re- read a story and put it aside and then I'll come back to it like later when sure. I can. So.
0: OK, well, there you go. Several offerings for you. To mm. pick up people's. Okay, well, remember you can send any questions or comments to backroll to oracle at gmail.com. Uh, remember, the question coming out of this episode is what you think about authenticity in writing and i guess we can add directing as well and your thoughts on our discussion at the top of that you can also find the show on google play and stitcher oh also if you have any comments about tom making some sort of mistake in his titans recap absolutely send that to him i'm just kidding tom like this you always joke with me that someone's going to send you email like the show on facebook or follow it on twitter at the oracle Please don't send any criticism to Tom. If it's really, just send it to me. I'll read it and I'll go. Uh huh. Uh huh. But I won't share it with him. Okay. Follow the <laughs> the bat. It's
1: not. It's not <laughs> the criticism. It's the bat splaining. I know. That's what gets on well, my
0: nerves. Well, you me for the past three hours.
1: You asked me to read. No, I, yeah. I, 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 was, I was. You no, I asked you to, to. I, I was commissioned in that case. Yes,
0: yeah, you did. You were. You, so we need. You're telling me that we need permission.
1: No, I just, I, I just. It just. It grates on me when I like. You know, when you're talking about something and it's all like, well, you know, this blah 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 blah, <laughs> and you're like, oh
0: my goodness. Okay. Well, what if they asked you, Tom? Could I tell you a little bit something about what you said? Would you allow it then?
1: Yeah, whatever.
0: Okay, like the show on Facebook or follow on Twitter. I think I already said that. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well, and support it, of course, by going to Patreon. Once again, thanks, to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle the Barbara Gordon Podcast. And until next time, do you want to try this again? You flubbed up last time.
1: Fly on, Bat Lovers.
0: There you go. That was much better